In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody's having a beautiful day. I hope that everyone out there has a little something to look forward to, someone to love, and something to do. It seems to me that those three things can really pull you through a bad day. Got an incredible guest for you today. But before I get started, I just want to let everybody listening out there know that this podcast and independent media is kind of a tough gig sometimes. And the best way you can do to support people like me or podcast is to just go down in the show notes and hit that uh that little paypal button right there and if you can that would be awesome no matter how big how small your donation totally helps now let's get into the incredible guest i have today melissa kwan she is a ceo and co-founder of ewebinar she has been in the startup game for over 12 years ewebinar i think is her third company she's a digital nomad a bit of an anti-authoritarian an original thinker and an incredible person to spend some time with today so, Melissa, I'm super thankful for you here today. Did I leave anything out in that introduction? <laughs> I want you to keep going. <laughs> Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I think that's the best one I've ever had. So feel free to just continue to compliment me. <laughs> well, it's easy to compliment. You've, you have created a life for yourself that is dangerously beautiful. And what I mean by that is that You've been very candid in other interviews where you've spoken about how you got to be where you are. And it, it hasn't always been roses and rainbows. Sometimes you find yourself at the depths of despair and you find out who you are. So I'm going for dangerously beautiful here. And maybe you can just maybe help people color in that beautiful artwork with a little bit of an origin story. Yeah. Um, that's a like, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a high bar to live up to. Ah! Like, like, I want to ask you which part you think is dangerous. Oh, you want to ask me? Yeah. Okay. Like what, like which part of my journey, like, do you feel like is a, is a dangerous part and which yeah. part is a beautiful part? Okay. This is a great question. I think the dangerous part is getting to the doorstep of despair. And in some of your previous interviews, you had talked about having to go to people you love the most and ask for help. That's dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous. I know people personally that I love 
that have gotten there and decided, you know what, I'm going to check out. I'm out of here. Yeah. Can't do it because they can't ask and they can't yeah. come to grips with this idea of like, okay, I'm not who I thought I was. In fact, I am yeah. nobody. I'm, a, I'm, I'm nobody. I have nothing. But yeah. like that, that danger is where that ember of beauty begins to burn because that's when you find out who you are, right? Like only there can things begin to develop inside of you that will burn bright yeah. forever, I think. I mean, that's like the business devil kind of like knocking on your door, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think everybody has that. And I, yeah, and, um, you know, things are pointing that out. And definitely, I think it's it's not unique to me, right? Like many business owners, I'm sure you you as well, sure. have have come across that point in time where you're like, I'm just like not made for this. Everything is hard. Like, why is it so hard? But we'll come back to that. Yeah. Um, so actually, I, I mean, it's probably like the 13... 13th anniversary of, of me, you know, being startup world. Um, previous two startups were also also in technology, but in real estate technology. Um, the technology company I'm building right now, eWebinar, is more agnostic, industry, language, geography agnostic, purposely as well. Um, so I'm not like pigeonholing myself into an industry like I did before. Um, but always been bootstrapped. I think that's like kind of my claim to fame. Um, had some family and friends funding and, and obviously put in like all my own money, <laughs> like including taking out loans that I couldn't really mm -hmm. pay back for a long time uh, to, to fund this thing. And of course, like using the best kind of funding as well, customer revenue um, to fund these startups. Uh, my second company, I ran for five years and was acquired in 2019, which gave me the capital and the confidence to start, you know, this company. Um, but I didn't sell my previous company for retirement level money. Um, and so I actually had to start eWebinar two months after that company was sold because I didn't, I just didn't want to work forever. Um, mm. And, you know, anything you start, I, th I think it doesn't matter how much experience you have takes five years, right? Like a couple years to conceptualize, get it out, a couple more years to, you know, see meaningful revenue and then probably a couple more years to, to feel comfortable with it. So um, I didn't really want to be working forever. And, and that's why I started eWebinar a couple months after. Um, but that's a company that I, that I'm running now. Um, and I think the thing that I want to mention and, and we can get into it as well is how much more intention I mm. started eWebinar with, um, compared to before, because I had the experience and, you know, that really the luxury to, to think about what mm. I wanted to do next. Um, in my first 10 years, I just did things because I wanted to make money. And I don't mean like that as a bad thing because I was young and I was hungry and it was all I knew. Like I didn't come from a family of founders and entrepreneurs. So everything I learned took longer because it was like a lesson that I had to figure out myself. Right. But I was never truly happy with my two previous companies. I was always in survival mode. Um, and there were just a lot of things that I would have done differently. So I was able to, you know, take a few months off and think about like, what is the company I want to start next? And it wasn't, you know, it didn't come from a place of like, okay, what's the product that's going to make most money. It came from a place of what is the company that's going to give me the life that I love the mm. most? And what is the thing that's going to make me most happy? And that's how I chose the company, the product, the idea, and the people that I work with today versus, you know, my previous two was just like, okay, what is the thing that I'm good at? What is the thing that I can sell and how can I make money? So, um, these are the things that I feel like I'm like a, a huge advocate for now 
like having lived both lives and how much more content and fulfilled I feel today, even though, you know, starting a company is hard um, <laughs> because I, everything that I do is now feeding, you know, my happiness versus, you know, the thing that puts most money in my pocket. Ironically, when you, yeah. when you do something that you're happy with, you make the most money. <laughs> mm, imagine that. It's <laughs> Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to get there, though, because we're so conditioned at a young age to think that material gains are what provide us our happiness. You know, if we, it's and I come from that right? culture, right? Here, like here. I'm coming from like a very traditional Chinese family where, you know, you are expected to be a professional, mm. right? Like a, a doctor, an accountant, investment banker, something really stable, right? Mm. And my, my parents were not entrepreneurs. So I grew up thinking, okay, this is what my path was supposed to be. You know, this is why I was put through university. My dad, like I, I used to joke that, and, and it's not really a joke, but I grew up in a shopping mall. Okay. Like other, other parents would take their kids to like camping and stuff. Like my dad would take us to like shopping malls mm -hmm. and my dad would buy me like Rob reports, like the luxury <laughs> magazine. So I could see all the things that I could buy if I had the money to buy it. And these are not like, you know, nice shoes, right? right. These are like private islands, <laughs> and like giant mansions on like their own islands. So I grew up really in that culture and attaching my self-worth Mm. and my success to material things, which I don't think is like, it's not a bad thing to like stuff. Right. Like I like stuff. I like, you it know, doesn't. experiences, but it is bad if your entire self-worth mm. is tied to that thing because you are then not seeking, you know, validation internally, right? You're waiting for someone to congratulate you on the thing that you have, but you know, that's actually where I came from. It, I think it speaks volumes of, of that. First off, your parents must be incredibly proud of you. They must have seen, you should bring a Rob report to your dad and be like, hey, we got him. <laughs> <laughs> dad, we did it. High five. I don't think you know, the number of years <laughs> I had to fight my parents because I was doing sure. this entrepreneur thing and I wasn't making any money and I was always poor and they had to bail me out of my credit card a few times until they yeah. talked to me for two years because they just wanted me to get over this founder thing so I could go get a job. I think that period of my life was like 10 out of the 13 years. And even when I sold my company, I called my dad and I was like, hey, I sold my company. But they just ha have no concept, right? Like people that are not entrepreneurs have no concept mm. of what it means. Because my dad would always say, well, if you're doing the right things, if you're successful, why don't you have any money? So their idea was like, you, you are not taking your life seriously and therefore you have no money. Mm -hmm. They're not ever thinking, oh, you're really trying really hard at this. Mm -hmm. And this thing is really hard. And that's why you have no money. It's because you, you're sticking to it. That's why you mm -hmm. burn through all that capital. So they, they just don't have a concept of that. So even when I sold my company, I was like so happy and I wanted them to be proud of me. But the first thing he said to me was, so exactly how much cash are you going to have in your account? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. And I was just like immediately soul crushed, but like also understanding right. like at that point I was old enough to not blame right. them for, right. you know, not being proud of me in the sense that I wanted them to be proud of me. Like it came from a good place because they just wanted to not take care of me anymore or not worry about it. But that's how little they understand about what I'm doing. But at this point, it doesn't even matter. 
<laughs> you have a great quote that says, if you want to make money, don't be an entrepreneur. And it's, I think that there's something to be said about these incredible feelings of being really liberated when you've just left everything that you have behind, when you're completely in debt, but you're doing what you love. You're like, yeah. And you tell people and they're like, you are a psychopath. You're going to lose everything. I don't know what you're doing. Don't even talk to me. You're yeah. cancer right now. Like there's, yeah. a, there's a weird, there's a weird thing happening in there, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that only happens um, when you're younger or maybe, mm. maybe it's not like a, an age thing. Maybe it's more like an experience thing, right? right? Because like, I, I think about um, who I was in my twenties when I started my first company and then also my second one and how like blue sky I was and how everything seemed really easy. So I think it's just the way you verbalize and express yourself and the way you feel like you need to tell everyone what you're doing, because in, in some ways you're seeking external validation, validation. Um, makes people have that reaction. Mm. Nowadays, I'm like, when I meet someone new, I'm like, please don't ask me what I'm doing. Like, I do not want to explain to you. Like, my, one of my biggest pet peeves is, like, somebody comes up to me in an event and be like, oh, what do you do? Oh, I have a software company. So what is it? Oh, it's a webinar. So, like, exactly what is it? That, that is just, like, my biggest pet peeve. But before, I love to talk about myself. Right. Because I wasn't successful. Right. right? I was struggling. And I wanted someone else to tell me that it was going to be okay. All right. So, I do think that, like part of the reaction that you've, you know, that you've just mentioned is just almost a result of how you express yourself. It's a great point. It's a great point to think about it. It, it brings up this idea of the mission statement of what eWebinar is. I think it's a great mission statement. And I think it kind of sums up a lot of what we were talking about. Can you, the, the mission statement of giving people their time back, right? Maybe you can talk yeah. a little bit about that mission statement, what it means to you and how you, how it translates into what you're doing with eWebinar. Yeah. So one of the things that, um, I really wanted in my next company, right after my second one was sold, it was like, I wanted to do something that I cared about. And like, you know, it, it wasn't like I wanted to start a nonprofit, like not that kind of thing. Like <laughs> I wanted something that was a reflection of me and mm. who I am. And freedom has always been my number one priority. That's why we always had a remote team, never had an office bef way before it was cool, right? Like I, I just wanted people to have complete freedom and control over their time and where they lived because I wanted to live that way. And, you know, so that's number one is like, I just wanted to do something I cared about. Like in my first two companies, I sold software to real estate agents. I mean, it may be money, but it wasn't something I was like super proud of, right? Mm. And um, it wasn't something that was a reflection of who I am. Like I, I went into real estate and real estate technology because that was my experience. It was like one of my first jobs and it was like where my connections lived and, and, I, and I knew what to do in that industry, but it just wasn't me. And I think that was a big part of why I was just never fully happy. Um, mm. But I was like too deep into it. It wasn't like I was going to make a switch. Um, but also like the, the problem of doing the same webinar over and over again, and, and that's a problem we solve, right? We take any video, we turn it into a webinar. So you never have to do them live. And I'm not talking like one time recordings, like what we're doing now. I'm talking like mm. 
your demos, your training, like all the stuff that you want to be doing every single day, but you just don't have the brain power, uh, nor is it like, does it make financial sense to do that? So I lived the problem of doing the same webinar every single day, <laughs> sometimes multiple times a day for my previous company, because we were always bootstrapped. And so it was just a problem that I knew intimately well. But the reason why it was a problem was because I was already nomading around the world. Mm. And I was doing these webinars on like opposite time zones. It got to a point where I would land in a new city and I would go to the hotel or Airbnb and I would have to test the internet speed like right away to see if I can run this, this webinar. And if it didn't, I would have to go buy like a portable Wi-Fi or, or, or a local SIM card because I had this training that was coming up. So it was actually infringing on my lifestyle and my freedom. And I always hated how I spent so many years earning that freedom that I, that I had finally, but then my freedom, my schedule was completely tied to my customer schedules of when they wanted the training for my software. So I always dreamt up this, this, you know, product that could free me from all these repetitive webinars, um, mm. and just allow me to live my life more. It would give me my freedom back. And this was just one of the things that kept surfacing in my mind is like, why isn't there something out there that's good enough to be me so I can just go and like live my life. So that was kind of where it came is like, I, I knew I wasn't the only person living this problem. Like I knew so many different people, so many different founders and entrepreneurs running small businesses like mine that can't afford to hire a team of people like doing trainings for them. And not only did I want to free myself, I wanted to free people like me so that they can grow their business without sacrificing, you know, the quality of content that they were putting out there. So the idea of building something to give people back their time was just something that's so close to my heart. And now that we have the software, like just to give you an idea of scale, like last year in 2022, I did 3000 demos because people just come to our website, they join a demo. I'm not actually there. And I didn't do a single one live. And I don't have any salespeople. So that's the scale and impact that it can have just on myself. And it's cool to be able to provide that for other people now. Because back then, like when I sold software to real estate agents, they just yelled at me all the time. <laughs> like it didn't matter that like, you know, we were putting our heart and soul into creating this like amazing software. Like it was an open house check-in software for them. But now like we actually have people thanking us. Because, you know, they're going on their first vacation in two years because of this, right? I was able to go to Burning Man and disconnect for nine days because we have this, right? Otherwise, somebody would have to be in my position. So that's kind of where the idea of freedom came from is like, it's just something that is so close to my heart, but it's also a problem that I live with for, for many years. And the other thing is, I think a lot of business owners um, start companies to be free, Mm. right? To, to have their own schedules, call their own shots. But then as the company grows, as your customers become more demanding, they work more in their business because they feel like they need to, or maybe they don't have enough resources to hire people to replace them. And then they forget that, you know, freedom is the primary reason why they started their company in the first place. So a big part of wanting to build this company is wanting to help business owners like myself get back to, you know, why they started this in the first place and, and make it like making it possible. That, thanks for sharing that. It's amazing. Well, 
it seems to me that one of the recipes for success, not only in your life, but in other people's life, is just identifying a problem that they have within, solving it, and then making it a pathway for other people to do. It just seems, is, it, is that, I mean, when I hear about freedom and wanting time back, and then creating both a product and a service, like somehow you've merged those two things together and allowed people to use that as a pathway forward. Do you think that's part of the recipe is finding something that you internally struggle with and presenting that answer to the world? I mean, I think that's ideal, right? Like, <laughs> sure. Like, of course, that's ideal. Like, wouldn't you love to do something you're yeah. good at that you're passionate about and then make it yeah. a product or a service? But I think while that's ideal, um, I wonder if that is a, an earned privilege because for me, that mm. was, right? Like, I started two companies in real estate because that's where my background was and my first job was in real estate. And I created a product for the industry that I knew. Right. Was I passionate about it? No, but I was sure an expert at it mm. and it's still, it, it can still be successful. Right. So I hate to say like one path is better than the other because sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Right. Right. You don't do what you love only like that would right. be amazing if we did, but as an entrepreneur and business owner, you do what is required, especially if you're building assets and building wealth so that maybe next time around or later on, you can do something you are truly connected to, right? So it, I don't think it matters which path you take. It's just like, what, it, what is the opportunity that's in front of you right now? Like my little cousin used to, he hated school, like absolutely hated school. And he was always so bad at like math and, you know, physics and all that. And my uncle was like, oh, can you talk to him? And this was like many years ago. He was like a teenager and he was like, well, I just, I just suck at it because I hate it. I'm like, like, dude, like it's so easy to be good at something that you love, right? People that are mm. great at what they do can be really good at what they hate and That's because well it is just required, right? So mm -hmm. I think that really applies to, to founders as well. Like, yeah, it's great if you find something that you're like an expert and you love, but sometimes that's not always the same thing. And I think that's okay. Yeah. There's something to be said about finding meaning in something you do. I think it was Viktor Frankl who wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he talks about being locked away in some concentration camp, but still finding meaning in there. And I think if you can do that, regardless of where you're at, that's what sparks the creativity. And maybe this is a good segue into, there seems to be an interesting relationship between authority and creativity. A lot of times in my life, I've found creative ways to make people in authoritarian positions upset. But I think that that same sort of relationship helps you create pathways out of difficult situations. It doesn't have to be authority. But what do you, what do you think is the relationship between authority and creativity? I mean, when you say authority, like, what are you referring to? Like, who is that authority? Is it like society's expectation? Or is it like your boss, your mentor? Like, what are you referring to? When I would say authority, maybe it's a great question. Let's start with the society's limitations. Like, or the per maybe maybe that's your own perceived limitations, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think a really great, you know, example of that, in, especially in like the startup world, is you know, if you don't raise money, you're not real, right? If you don't raise money, you're not successful. You're not ambitious right? You're just like a tiny little mom and pop shop. Mm -hmm. Like you're insignificant, right? And if you come from 
big, bigger, you know, startup cities like, you know, San Francisco, New York, London, like that's, you know, that's the message that, that you get. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the messaging that I got, you know, when I moved to New York to, to grow my previous company, I think it is as limiting as you make it, but I had to learn because no VCs would give me money and I had to still make money. And then eventually we didn't need VC money anymore because we were profitable. So like I saw both sides of the, both sides of the coin where like, you know, you do a certain pitch, you fit into a cookie cutter, like, you know, slide deck so, so that you can raise money and, and everyone does the same thing versus like not needing that. And then understanding that businesses exist on many different spectrums. Mm. Right. So I think it it's as limiting as you make it because when you fit into what society wants you to do, like there is a template for it, right? There yeah. is a process for it. It's like, you don't go and make your own slide deck. <laughs> like you <laughs> download them from the internet and it is in a certain order. And then there are organizations, companies like accelerators and mentors that help you make the slide deck to be more templated so investors see the exact same thing, leading them to fund your company. So I think like if you want to follow a certain recipe, like there is a recipe for success in that realm. But if you remove yourself from that and you say like, actually, I don't care because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to call my own shots and make my own destiny and I don't need someone else's money, then, you know, the sky's the limit right? You can do like yeah. literally anything you want. Um, and I think that for me is the most inspiring because I'm a bootstrapper myself. Um, I have a community of, of kind of bootstrap founders around me and just seeing the different ways they build their business and the different ways they lead their lives are like, that is what, like, that is what I aspire to, right? Like I don't aspire to, you know, raising a ton of money, hiring so many people, getting on tech crunch. Like I used to want that because I needed that external validation. Mm -hmm. And then you realize how unimportant that is to your success. So I think that's like, but it's not, like I said, it's not like one path is better than the other. Like some people really love that, right? Some right. people want to raise money and want to hire a lot of people, want a cool office and, and want to IPO. And frankly, we also need those companies, yeah, right? Like the Ubers and the Airbnbs, like those are the companies a lot of times that create a fundamental shift in how we live, live our lives. Right. And so we need those, but most people are not made for that. The problem comes is when they think they are and they try to go that path and they don't know what to expect. And then they're, you know, and then they're fault, they've fallen into this thing that they don't love. Right. So I think that's kind of the relationship, but I, I do think that now when, when venture capital is much harder and profitability has become cool again, <laughs> people are starting to be more creative um, in how they want to live and how they want to build their companies, especially after the pandemic. Mm. Because like, instead of traveling for work every month, right. people are realizing, actually, I kind of like staying at home. And that's, you know, fueled, I think, kind of the next generation of, of founders and, and business owners and what it means to be a business owner and not fit into, you know, the cookie cutter, kind of template that your peers have told you that you need to become. It's so beautiful. It, it's so like meta in a way. Like my, my grandpa used to say, if you want a new idea, read a really old book. And in some <laughs> ways, <laughs> it's a pretty good yeah. quote, right? 
Yeah. And in some ways we start talking about, oh, it's cool to be profitable again. And sometimes we talk about the, the rule of authority and creativity. Do you see, and then we have COVID come, everybody's back home, we used to travel. Do you see like this series of pattern that maybe it's not a, maybe it's not that history repeat, but we're, we're rhyming in a helical model moving upwards in some ways. But do you see a pattern in that particular movement of business and ideas that we're on now? Yeah, I guess I'm not like old enough to see those patterns, right? But I will say that companies used to only thrive on profit. <laughs> so just based on that, I think, you know, we're, we're definitely back there. Like, I mean, how old is venture capital? I don't know. Like, is it 30 years, 20 years? I'm not sure. But like, you know, companies used to have to make a profit. You know, and it's not just tech companies, right? It's like your coffee shop next door, right? The vendor down the street. You know, you used to take like manageable loans, not like hundreds of millions of dollars of loans, right? So from that perspective, I I think, you know, yeah, we're probably going back to where, where, you know, where we started. But I think there's just not so much a pattern, but maybe a shift in in control. I love it. Right? Like, yes. Like taking back control like where it's control of my time, of my productivity, you know, of, of my career, right? Like, you know, the gig economy where you can, you know, be a food delivery driver, you know, on the weekend, but you can also have this other job or you can be a contractor on Upwork or you can just, you know, quit your job and be a contractor for your same company and you're willing to lose those benefits, but then now you can work remote full time. Whereas when you're under them, you couldn't, right? So I think there is a shift in taking control of your own destiny. And that has been made, I guess, possible by technology, right? Like having more transparency, having more ways to pay, having more ways to communicate, right? Having more ways to be in front of someone or even just asynchronous communication, but having the ability to be in front of someone, but not actually be physically there. And that's, you know, opened up a whole new world of like, you know, if I can have control over my time in my life, like how do I want to spend it? And I think that's all related. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, in some ways it echoes the rapid innovation and transformation we're seeing when people have access to free-flowing information. And you could argue that a lot of what we're seeing now is a freeing up of copyrights, kind of a freeing up of patents when you look at the way AI has freed us to use images and templates. And it's, 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 it's no wonder why we're seeing this rapid innovation. What, you know, here's, a, here's an interesting question. As, as someone who is developing sort of this Web3 technology and, and in these companies and as an entrepreneur, it seems like social media has a way of alienating us in a weird sort of way. Do you think that what you're doing on some level makes people more alienated from themselves or does it open up themselves to be freer to, freer to connect with people? Yeah, I guess that's an interesting question, right? It's like, I mean, when you say alienating, like give me an example okay. of, what, of what you're referring to. So I love talking to awesome people like yourself and all these guests on here. And I find myself in my living room, which is awesome. I got my books and my map behind yeah. me. It makes me feel good about myself. But 
I'm alienated from the people that I used to spend a lot of time with at the old job that I was at. I'm alienated from my family and I'm alienated in a way that I have this chamber of people with whom I enjoy speaking, but I yeah. am sort of siloed over here in a weird sort of way, you know, and it's, I don't know if I feel yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's not so much like social media, it's just technology, right? Like, right. you know, allowing people to connect without actually meeting in person. I yes. think I can only speak in my my perspective, my point of view. Um, I want to be alienated from... <laughs> Me too. <laughs> like, I want to be alienated from work people, honestly. Right? Like, I, I love talking to you and I love being on Thank podcasts. You. And like, I want to be on, you know, some digital-based conferences, but... You know, I spent 10 years going to conferences and sitting at booths and smiling at people that walk by and trying to get them to like come to my booth because this, you know, because the company yeah. that we have a partnership with has it in our contract that we have to fill their conference, you know, hall or whatever. And it's just like the biggest waste of time, but also like super not environmentally friendly, right? This kind of stuff. And, but it was required and, and very expensive. So, I mean, I don't want to spend my time with work people in like in person. So I've chosen not to. And that was actually one of the non-negotiables that I had coming into eWebinar. So I don't think it makes, I don't think technology makes it such that we're more alienated from right. people. I think it makes it such that we are able to choose better who we spend our time with because there are still business conferences I can go to you know, that disaster just happened and I could have gone if I, if I wanted to. And, but I could be more choosy with my time. Right. And I want to spend all my in real lifetime with my friends and family. In fact, like I have a no call, no networking, no conference rule. Like, and, and like people are like shocked by that, but I always say like, it's not like, it's, it's not personal. I just don't do it. And some people get offended, like 10% of people get offended. And they're like, oh, don't you want to build your business? I'm like, not with you. <laughs> because if I want to build my business with you, I would be meeting you. <laughs> you know, like how many call requests do we get like every day on LinkedIn? Like, hey, do you have 15 minutes? Like if I gave everybody 15 minutes, I would have no 15 minutes. But unless you are a friend or like a super close friend of a friend, like I don't even take a Zoom call because every time I've done it, I've regretted it. And it just gives me no ROI. Um, and it's different if you're like, Hey, I've got this friend. Can you help them do this thing? And can you connect with them? Like, that's a different thing, but it's like, Hey, do you want to connect so we can network? It's like, no, I do not want to network. I've networked enough. I've hit my quota of networking. So I think it's, it's beautiful in the sense that it allows us to be more choosy. And that goes back to taking back control. Back then I had no control because I needed to go to this conference instead of the booth because it was required of me. And that's how my software was sold. So I needed to do it. Yeah, I didn't have to, but I would have to suffer on my revenue. But that's why I built a company that could be sold, you know, 100% over the internet. That was also one of the non-negotiables that I had. So I actually think technology is beautiful in that way. Yeah. And you can choose who you spend your time with in real life and also, you know, connect digitally. So I think it allows us to like cut out, you know, all the kind of BS and all the garbage that we we used to have to do because it was just a thing that, that we had to go to. I don't know if you like experience the same thing. I, I do. I think that the answer to the question, is that really necessary, George? 
The answer to that question is yes, it's imperative. So I think that all the things that we went through and all like these, these cardboard cutout middlemen that needed that we needed to have agencies for things. I, I think that technology is giving people the ability to build parallel economies. And whether that's with your time, whether that's with uh, money or NFTs or whatever you choose to exchange between peer and peer, I think technology is the foundation on which we're building these parallel economies. And you and I can have an economy and my wife and I can have an economy. And it's really incredibly liberating to understand what that means for you, your family, your loved ones, your time. And I'll give you an example. I was speaking to a gentleman the other day, Israel Wilson, who's, we talked a little bit about the Board Ape Yacht Club NFTs and why they were so successful. And it fleshed out this idea of imagine a collective of artists and engineers and intelligent, fun people getting together and we all pitch in $1,000. We have a $1,000 token. And I'm like, whenever we have that token, I can call in my favorite. Hey, Melissa, here's my token. I really need help with this SaaS product over here. I need your expertise on this. You're coming to my rescue. Hey, George, I really need help with this podcast over here. These ideas, boom, I'm coming to your rescue. We've just created this artistic enclave of productive power that will allow us to propel ourselves into the next world. You know, and I, that's happening right now, Melissa. Like I see it happening. It's really exciting for me and other people. And I wish more people would get on the technology bandwagon and see technology in AI as this tool that, that, that might be, I look at it as like all these old things are like the scaffolding on a rocket ship and they're falling away. And now we're finding ourselves kind of lifting into space a little bit. So that was a long-winded way of saying, yes, I think technology is doing something similar. Yeah, I mean, it's not going away, right? So right. you can take advantage of it or you yeah. can hate on it, <laughs> right? Um, and I think the other thing I want to mention, like, is, like, I think it, I think it does shut out, like, some relationships, but it sure. also means that you have to be intentional about building relationships. Mm. Like, it allows us to build deeper relationships because it doesn't require us to be physically there. Right? Because we're so yeah. text-based, we're so asynchronous-based. And, and also, like, I've met a ton of friends that I would call my friends that I would never meet in real life. Like, isn't that crazy? Mm, that is. Like, I have a community of founders on, on WhatsApp that, like, we can just throw questions out to. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty tight community of, like, 30, like, 30, 40, you know, founders that are, like, kind of in the same stage. But, like, these are people who may never meet in the rest of their lives. And we still communicate almost daily in a way that like, as if we know each other mm -hmm. on our phones, I think that's pretty special. Right. And, you yeah. know, you can have one-on-one -on -one conversations on, you know, text or, or whatnot with them as well. And like, I, and, and even with my parents, like I come from a culture where you don't talk <laughs> to your parents in real life mm. ever. Like my dad and I used to go into each respective rooms and just email each other. So like, it's just so, so awkward to have a conversation. Um, and so like, it's also allowed us to have deeper conversations because it removes mm. the awkwardness of face-to-face. Mm. -face. And like, I think, I think there are like bad things about it. Like people, like, you know, certain people, it's, it, allow, it, it makes certain people, I guess, have like digital personalities. So it's probably bad for like online dating if, mm. you, if that's all you do. Um, but in a big way, I think it, it actually fuels a lot of relationships and allows for better communication because not everybody is great at communicating in real time, right? You need to think yeah. about something and write it down before you hit the send button. Mm -hmm. And that part about technology and communication, I think is, is beautiful and, and cool. Yeah, it's, 
it's a fascinating way to to investigate relationships. I think it's Lloyd Lobo who says that relationships are the new currency. And I can't help but see in my own life the relationships I have made that have echoed some of the things you're saying. People I never would have spoken to in my life where I've been able to ask some questions and then that starts a relationship and you're like, son of a gun, I never thought about it from that angle. That's amazing. And it's it's the emotion was stripped out of it. It was just a, yeah, it's like sitting next to someone on a plane. Like you have this in, long conversation with somebody sometimes, you don't even know them and you just walk away and never see them again. But yeah. similar with a WhatsApp group, like you can have this brain trust of people with whom you're not physically or truly emotionally tied to and they'll give you their honest opinion there's something beautiful about it yeah and and i think like on the on the topic of like social currency i mean mm, my and yeah. all my startups have been built on favors mm. right like i i mean i started doing things for people before they were asked for years and it's not like hey george can you do me a favor it's like right. it just becomes the thing like, especially I think as founders, like anyone that's walked the same path is like, okay, this is really hard. And I, and I want to work other, like help other, help other business owners. It just becomes a very natural thing, you know? And the more, like, if you're in this brain trust, the more other mm. people see how, you know, everyone else is helping each other, the more they want to contribute. So I think it's, yeah. I mean, I think it's investing in, in relationships is, is something that needs to be very intentional. Um, but it's definitely something that, you know, you have to, give out a lot first without like expecting something in return. But yeah, it's absolutely like the currency. It kind of, like, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Carl Jung and that particular tree of philosophy. And it's one of the lessons I've take away from him is that everybody you see is like a mirror of yourself. And it was only a few short years ago that I started really understanding that the people that I despise in daily lives that I would see all the time, like, I hate this guy. I hate talking to this person. Dude, why am I talking to him? The more I realized yeah. that person was showing me what I hated about myself, you know? And it was like, oh, this person is weak. And it was like, I'll tell you a quick story. People may have heard this before, but it's a fun one. So there was this guy at my work a few years ago, probably like eight, nine years ago. And I never got along with him. He was the nicest guy in the world. And he always say nice things, but I always be mean to him. And one of my friends pulled me aside and they're like, George, you're a dick. And I'm like, I'm just busting yeah. his balls. Forget about it. I'm busting his balls. They're like, yeah. nah, man, it's over the line. And I remember I, I came home that weekend and I did a giant dose of mushrooms. And I started thinking, because it bothered me. And I'm like, why am I being a dick? What's my problem? So I started thinking about it and it hit me like a one-two punch. So like the first punch was, I don't like that guy because he's weak. And then it hit me, I'm weak. That guy's showing me everything about me that's weak and it's I'm just projecting it on him. Oh my, I had to go and apologize. Yeah. He's like, I am such an asshole, dude. I hope you forgive yeah. me. All these things that I've said, and let me repeat them again. And you can tell you can punch me if you want to. Yeah. Totally mean. I don't deserve this. You know, <laughs> like just kind of throwing myself on his mercy. And he just laughed at me. He's like, You are an asshole, George, but you're all right. So, but he, anyways, he forgave me. But it was that moment that I began to realize I should be thanking all the people that I despise. I should be thanking all the people I'm mad at because. They're showing you. And I think that's the, have you found that that's a language that the universe speaks to you? Like, look at this over here. You can see these lessons everywhere if you're willing to look at them, right? Yeah, I've never had like a similar experience um, because the people that I despise <laughs> and I just don't like being around, I just cut them out of my life. Like I have no problem just like not being around them. Like it's just a waste of my energy. Um, so I'm not like, so like, I'm not introspective in that way. Like, Oh, why do I like despise this person? And why am I mean to them? I try not to be mean to people. Right. Um, 
but I like I actively like curate. Like curation is the key to my life. Um, and I, and I like, and now that I'm older, uh, I feel like, like I just, so I just tur- turned 40, like a couple months ago. So I feel like, thank you. So I feel like I've like unlocked another level of discernment. Ah, totally. You know, that I could be like, mm, no, it's like, can this person join this group? No. Like, I don't know this person. And like, unless, like, unless WhatsApp, you know, decides not announce to everybody that someone's been removed or someone leaves the group. Like I can't just like willy nilly include people in these, in these group chats. I've never met your friend. I know we're going to the same event on the weekend, but I've never met your friend. So curation is like the key to my life. So I do think it's important, right. To like actively cut people out of your life that drains Mm. your energy. Like who has time for that? Yeah. Boundaries, right. This idea that you have to have healthy boundaries, whether it's, I mean, work life, that, how do you navigate that? Was there a time in your life where you had to curate the new boundaries? Like when you talk about going to New York and all of a sudden seeing the way these, these slides act versus, hey, I don't really need that. But was there an evolution of your boundaries in your, in your career? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's all, for me, it's not like I have my work life and I have my right. life life, right? Like I think- work the the word work life balance is is has always been weird to me because it insinuates that you have two lives i think that the two should be intertwined as a single life right if you find something that you truly enjoy working on like in your professional life it's just part of your life um and so like i don't feel like people can compartmentalize who they are so how I treat my my professional life and my, my personal life is actually very similar. Um, when I moved to New York was probably like my least discerning, you know, period of my life because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I moved to New York from Vancouver. I didn't have any friends. So every person that I met initially was like through one other person. You know, they connected me on Facebook and I'd be that new person like begging people to have dinner with me. And then I went to every single startup event to try to meet people. And then I started this co-living house where I would just hang out with my roommates so I just was, I just met everybody and I, because I needed to build a new life in my early thirties where everybody had established friend groups, you know, in a foreign city. So that was, that was pretty hard. Um, but I, I guess I started to become more aware of how I needed to cut out energy vampires, like maybe just a, a few years ago, right? Like I used to, I, I used to, you know, invite people because you like, because my friend knew that person, even if I didn't like them, but it just, it just drains so much of your energy that it's just, you know, not worth it. So I started to become more discerning in that sense. Um, but I was also then, you know, applying that, I guess, in my professional life is like, there are people that are just sucky, right? I'll give you an example. Sure. You know, there are so like the thing, the, one of the, the, one of the types of people that bother me the most professionally are like humble braggers. And they just, they're just out there to, to make you feel bad, but it's not, they're not out there to make you feel bad. That's the result. Mm. They're out there to make themselves feel good. And when you are a struggling startup founder, like I was for the first 10 years of my life, hearing about how amazing someone is doing especially in the same conversation where you're telling them you're not doing well is like the last thing you want to hear. And there's so many of these people, 
that just want to like pat themselves on the back and like let them know like they're like oh I'm working on this really big deal right now but I can't tell you what it is but it's gonna be like, <laughs> it's gonna be life changing. There's a lot of those, especially mm. in in big cities. So I've you know actively like these are like energy vampires right. that I like actively cut out because it's just just makes me feel bad and it's not productive. So in my professional life, I, I think that's kind of the path that I'm taking. But now yeah. like I don't have any friends in my social life that are like, you know, that are just work related. Um, I keep those. That is one thing I, ke- I keep fairly separate. Um, cause you know, I don't need to make friends with my work. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, what do you think about that? It's true. I, I think that a lot of times people are seeking validation from other people. And again, with my grandpa, the, the emptiest barrel makes the loudest sound. Right, it's just this giant. Your grandpa's echo a apartment. smart man. <laughs> you need to have a quote, like a like a page or a book of quotes from your from your grandpa. His fifth <laughs> wife shot him five times. <laughs> <laughs> He's an awesome guy. He's no oh longer with God. us. Papa Bob, we love you. But yeah, it's it's true. It's in and you can see it. Doesn't matter if you're in a big city, a small town, if you're at a at your community center or you're at a big event somewhere, the, the person that's always telling you how great they're doing is probably the most insecure person out there. And you, if you, if you get too close to them, you're going to get it on you a little bit. So you should probably try to stay away from them, you know, it, but I've seen that in my life too. And I, I think it's a, a, it's a, a strain of illness that infects us. Cause I, if we're honest with ourselves, we all find ourselves wanting other people to see us for the greatness that we think we have inside of us. And I think that the person humble bragging or bragging just hasn't found a way to get people to see him in the way they want him to. So they're desperately trying to like, hey, well, it's just our ego, right? It's like everything stems from that, you know? Yes. You know, it's like how, like, I mean, it would be great. I think if everyone understood that, Um, (laughs) because I think we all start with a big ego. Like that's how we started. That's why we started a company in the first place. Right but it actually doesn't serve us. Like it's the ego that wants to be like validated and wants to be celebrated. And like, you know, there's another type of energy vampire that I caught. It's like the person who's always trying to teach you something. <laughs> like, like, I didn't ask for this advice. And also like you haven't walked the path that I'm walking on. Like, and I don't know how to end this conversation, but you need to stop teaching me right now. You know, there's just a lot of those people or like, you know, they raise a bunch of money and they think like they, they, they believe that they've earned this authority to like start mm. teaching you things and like telling you you should build your business a different way. It's like, I don't need this right now. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of that, like, I guess, I guess in the business community, which is why, you know, I actively stay away from that right now. <laughs> what, what do you think is the, it seems to me that the avenue of lived experience seems to be a much more fruitful environment than the level of the classroom. I'm not saying we don't need both, but it seems to me that if you can speak to someone who has gone through the lived experience, then, and I don't know, I guess sometimes the teachers can have lived experience, but what do you think is, is when you look at the horizon of education in the future, and you look at yourself and other people you know who have kind of bootstrapped themselves up and found ways to make things happen versus someone that's going to school now and trying to learn how to be an executive. Are those, are those just two different paths or do you see those merging or do you see education kind of falling away in some ways? 
I mean, our education system is completely broken. <laughs> totally. Like, why do we have to learn calculus in high school? I'm not sure. Right? Like, why are we not learning sales and financial literacy? Mm. And, you know, like the basic things that allow us to make a living. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, so I think from that perspective, like our education system has never, like has not, I, I don't want to say never because I'm not up to date, um, has, has not really been updated to educate us to be independent mm. in life. And that's a problem, right? And maybe some universities that are more specialized yeah. are, are also doing that. And, and I think there are certain things that, you know, you must need an education for, like if you're going to be an engineer or, you know, a software developer or a doctor, like, of course, right? But if you want to be an entrepreneur or if you want to be, you know, in sales, right? Like there's, there's not... Like if you want to be like a financially literate person and not take yeah. out a whole bunch of loans, like <laughs> that's not, there, there isn't much education. I think that's around that. And I think that's really unfortunate. And I think even if you, I think even if a, a school offers like entrepreneurship and business, it's like a, it's like a minor, right? It's like a series of courses. It's not like a major that you take. And right now my partner's son is, is in university and his, his younger son is about to go to university next year. So he's like looking at programs like this and there's really nothing that allows him to learn what we do. Mm. And, you know, that's, you know, I think that, that hopefully that, that will change. Um, but I definitely think that, you know, there's a discrepancy between the education that our, you know, that our kids and teenagers and young adults are, are being taught today versus what is required to build mm like a fruitful, like rich, like independent yeah. life. Yeah. I wish that in school they would teach the relation, our relationship to fear and how to overcome it, you know, how to take risks that make your life worthwhile. It seems to me that at least in the Western school and the public schools I went to was built on this tradition of you sit down in front of an authoritarian figure, you're trained like a Pavlovian dog with all these bells and whistles. And you got to ask for permission and all these things. But it seems to me if we had a small, and, and I'm sure if there's, we need money and stuff like that, but I'm just saying it seems to me a better model might be smaller groups and inviting people to talk about their fears and walking towards the edge of the cliffs and you know just doing some things where you could show people like, yeah, you could fall right there. What would you do if you did fall? You know, We're like, actually going in the opposite direction. I don't know if you know. Right. Like there's like, I mean, I maybe it's a private school thing, but like my friends, kids, like they removed homework and <laughs> grades and report cards mm. and like all the way up to high school. It's like, I forgot the word for this type of education, but I'm like, what if they go to another school where there are provincial exams? Like, how are they going to adjust that? How do they apply for university? Right. Like if yes. you, they're actually actively removing fear and competition from schools now because they don't want to make people feel bad. Right. <laughs> and, and actually like Lloyd Loba and I talk about this a lot is like, yes. what is the next generation going to be when you can't compete? Mm. Right. When you remove competition, like where is the resilience going to come from? Right. And I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you that every time I've hired a young person, it's never worked out because they've, either goes to me, like goes to the company and just didn't decide not to show up one day. Mm. Or, you know, they come, you know, in, into a roadblock and they didn't want to continue because, you know, it was too hard.
It's insane. So we're actually going in the other direction. Um, and I don't know where, like, I think we're already seeing some of the effects of that, but like, where are we going to be in five to 10 years? I have no idea, but I'm, I'm like really as an employer, like seeing and really feeling the effects of that right now. And it's, I, I think it's really unfortunate. And I think it's just, it's, I don't know, man, it's, it's just like a function of maybe removing some of that fear, both yeah. in the education system and also at home and in society. Yeah. I think sometimes, what do you, what do you think about the relationship between fear and unrealistic expectations? Sometimes it seems to me like the younger generation is like, why even try? Like, how the hell am I supposed to buy this million dollars? I'm, I'm 18. <laughs> well, why try when I could just be an influencer and I could just like, <laughs> sell a photo for a million right. bucks, right? Right, right. Everyone's trying to be an influencer. And some people make it. Uh, actually, like I, my friend's son, like I think he got into it pretty early, but he was really good at this game. Like right. I, he never went to college, but like he just started like streaming, like himself playing this game, but he was really good at it. And in anything you do, you have to be like the top 0.1%. And he was sure. that person. And then he started like building an audience on YouTube and like, he just now commentates on games and he is like so, so, so successful. And he's like 21 and lives in a group house and has like a super hot model girlfriend and like, wow. he's made it. <laughs> He's made now, it, right? For yeah. now. Yeah. Until but like this guy wall. has more money than like maybe I can ever accumulate. Sure. He, you know, and it's awesome, right? But absolutely he's one out of like millions of kids that I like actually do it. And, you know, he works hard and his sure. life is completely in the, in the public eye. Mm. Um, but on that note, um, I've actually lost my train of thought. What were, what we, were you saying? We were that? just talking about fear and relationships yeah. and the way in which the world's moving. Um. Yeah, I, I think that I almost feel like we've made it okay mm. to, like, to stop. Um, how do I phrase this? Like, we've made it okay to not be, I'm trying to phrase this in the right way, <laughs> to not be offensive. Like, it's okay to let go of your fears instead of overcoming them, if, if that makes sense. Mm. It's like, oh, I have this roadblock. Oh, it's okay. Don't do it then. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I, like, I hate using the word mental health because I do believe like I, that's a, that's like a real thing. Right. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes you just like need to kind of overcome this thing. Like I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah, please. My, my COO was going to have this conversation with this person we hired and, and like, we didn't know how to have this conversation with her because it, it's like, you know, she wasn't performing. It's been months like, and, and finally he, like, he didn't want to hurt her feelings. And then finally he's like, okay, I got to have this conversation with her because she's just now creating work for me instead of taking it away. And it's hard, right? In a small company, sure. like it's hard to hire. It's hard to have these conversations. And like, he was like, just kind of leaning it, like leaning into her for like a couple minutes, like, like letting her know that like, Hey, mm -hmm. like you're not really, you know, hitting those expectations. And like you said, you would do this, but it didn't happen. And she was like, I can't have this conversation right now. My mind's just not in the, not in a good place. I need to go. <laughs> That's so awesome. This is I mean not <laughs> the first time this has happened by the way. So, you know, like, I feel like there's, there's, <laughs> 
there's some of like, okay, well, how, you know, and, but then it's like, well, but then I don't want to not respect them. So at which point are you like respecting, you know, this person that you're working with and at at which point are they weaponizing it? And that's a tough, that's a tough line, but I feel like the next generation is kind of heading that way. This is something that no, nobody ever talks about, by the way, this is like something that like within business owners, like in my, in my group is like some of the things that we riff about. It's just like, oh my gosh, like, (laughs) are you being serious right now? (laughs) The weaponization of fragility is a real thing. I love that. Right. It's it's true. You know what it's like? It's almost like sarcasm. Like sarcasm is a way in which someone with no power can speak truth to people in power without them knowing. So too is fragility a way people can try to get to the people ahead of them without doing anything. Like and make, you know, it's, it's like this weird sort of wordplay on guilt and emotions and stuff. But perhaps the answer to this is to bring back bullies. Like the more bullies <laughs> out there. <laughs> yes. Out, right? Yes. Like I got beat up by a bully. Like a lot of times when I got beat up, sometimes, not every time, but a lot of times I was like, mm, I probably deserve that. I was being kind of. I kind of deserve to get punched right there. They didn't kill me. They just punched me in the face. And I'm like, I kind of deserve that. And I'll never forget one of the first times, the first time I ever got beat up, like in third grade, I had to, we went to the, I got a referral. Me and the other kid, my friend, Paul Arandano, we had to go to the principal's office. My dad came and picked me up. My dad said, what happened? I got in a fight. Here's my dad's. You win? No. That that was it. That was it. He took me, he turned me, he took me to be a wrestler after that. Like the next week I started wrestling and I wrestled for like the next 15 years. But that was his strategy. My mom's strategy, totally different. Come home. George, what happened? Oh, I got in a fight, mom. Well, George, you're you're younger than everybody in your class. And you know what? You're you're not you're not gonna be a really tall, large man. And you're gonna be younger than everybody for the next 15 years. So if you can't learn to fight with your words and win arguments before they end up in a fight, you deserve to lose. <laughs> so from that point forward, like I got well, you need to learn how to move faster. Yeah, one of the two. You got to be fast. You're a little guy. You got to be fast. You got to be smart. You got to be quick. You know, you you have to be all these things that you're not. But that's what bullies do. Bullies teach you how to overcome obstacles. Whether it's the kid that's taking your lunch money, whether it's the kid that's saying mean things to you, and ultimately, I think what happens from the kid that gets bullied is that. One day he stands up to that bully and the other kids see that. And then that becomes inspiration for them. Hey, it can be done. No one liked that bully anyway, you know? And there's something that happens when we, when we remove those obstacles from kids at a young age, they no longer have this ladder of ascension. They no longer have this wellspring of courage that will help them make it to the next level. It's, but so bringing bullies back, what do you think? (laughs) I mean, I think, I think like a bullies back then, you know, when you're talking about like taking your lunch money versus bullies yeah, totally. now has like a different, it's just like a whole different vibe. Like people are really mean nowadays. Mm. And, and I actually going back to our, you know, conversation about communication is like, while a digital communication allows mm. you to build deeper, more meaningful connections, it also allows people to be like pretty nasty. Yeah. And then it lives forever. So I actually, I think that's where a huge problem is, mm-hmm. is like, even when, when I do support, like I still do support for my software. Yeah. People are awful. Like they, they would never say that to me face to face. Like imagine really? if I was standing like at a cashier in a grocery store, they would never say half the things they say to me digitally. Right. And I'm, 
I don't have children like for that reason. I don't want them to like live through this like digital age of having everything live forever and feel like they need to be someone else. And mm. I think it's hard to be a kid nowadays, but I do believe that, you know, we need to teach people how to stand up for themselves in a way that's yeah. maybe less physically and, and verbally violent. Um, but yeah, I don't know where the line is, right? Like with, with, you know, bullying versus like, you know, teaching somebody a lesson. Cause I do think that nowadays, <laughs> like we technology allows us to be like a whole different right. category of like a bully and, and having something live forever on the internet is just like a tough thing to, to have as a kid. Yeah. Even as an adult, yeah. <laughs> like you have something like bad written about you. Like it doesn't go away. Like as soon as an article goes yeah. out, like all these sites like start to clone it. Yeah. It's like a virus in a weird sort of way. It just keeps oh, yeah. replicating, right? But that's what makes people like a totally different like talking track here. That's what makes people yeah. so politically correct nowadays. Mm, fear. That like it's a bit of it's a bit boring sometimes mm. to have these public conversations because everybody says what they're supposed to say versus, you know, what they really want to say. Yeah. Right. Which is why having these like kind of closed communities is, you know, inspiring and meaningful because you actually get to say, you know, what you really want to say. Um, you know, and actually Lloyd and I talk about this a lot too. It's just like, you know, you interview someone and, you know, and then they want a certain piece cut out because like the company didn't want that there. <laughs> it just makes every conversation yeah. kind of similar, right? That's why, yeah. like, you know, I'm like, I'm always open and, and honest because I don't have any investors. <laughs> like, institutional investors. I, we have some family and friends investors, but it allows me to say anything that I want. Yeah, that's refreshing. And I think that that brings us to the idea of authenticity and authenticity as as one of the last areas that speaks to people, I think, because it is such a cardboard cutout. There is so much political speak. There is so much of this and that and do's and don'ts with the commas and without the commas, you know, and like it's just this authenticity is something that I think calls to people. So when you can say what you want, regardless of the company you work for, where you can say what you want, regardless of your sponsors or your investors, I think it gives you a, a, a breath of fresh air to everybody. Because I think on some level, everybody wants to say what's on their mind, but they are fearful yeah. of it, right? Well, I mean, I think it matters a lot if you're, you know, trying to grow your company, trying to raise the next right. round, if you're a public company, like it does matter because what you say has a revenue impact. Mm. Right. And you, you are responsible for your, you know, for your shareholders. Um, but that's also one of the reasons why, you know, I wanted to bootstrap. I didn't want right. to, I mean, many reasons, but one of the reasons why it's like, I don't want to invite a boss that just tells me what to do because freedom is mm. my number one, my number one priority. And, and then a lot of the things I actually write on, on LinkedIn, like the, the private message that I get is like, you know, thank you for, you know, being so mm -hmm. honest and, you know, I can really relate to this. You know, there's a lot of like rah-rah yeah. stuff that people just don't relate to. Mm -hmm. It's kind of boring, right? Oh, I've hired like 100 people and I raise all this money and everything's going great. Like everybody writes that. Like right. you're not writing that for your audience. You're writing that for, you know, perhaps the next investor to see and then, you know, people to tell you you're great and then maybe they'll buy from you. So it, it's, it goes back to, the, to your question about creativity. Yeah. Right. Like it, it even goes down to the creativity you're able to express publicly in in your writing. Right. Is like if you fit into this cookie cutter, I have to write about things that only make myself look good, which, you know, I think 
brings a certain audience, but most people I don't think connects with that. How, so how do you how do you balance the creativity experimentation with bootstrapping? You know, like that's or, or or I mean, I guess you can have that authentic adventure if you are bootstrapping. But how do do you you must lose some of that creative experimentation if you're taking investor money, right? Like that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I don't know the other side of the coin, right? right? Like right. I, um, I can only imagine because. Like if you look at a lot of stuff I write, I write, I never write with my brain. Mm. I write from my heart. And that's how I'm able to, to write, to, to translate right. something. Like I don't reverse engineer and, and think, oh, I want people to think this. I want more people to react. Like, I don't know if I put something out there, people are going to engage with it, but I write what I feel like writing. But I could only imagine that if I had someone watching me closely and I needed the next round of money to pay my staff, Mm -hmm. that I yeah. would write very differently. Like I would almost try to manipulate, yes. you know, what I'm writing because I want them to, to read it in a different way. Right. So, you know, I'm not a great writer, um, which is why I need to write like what I <laughs> actually want right, versus reverse engineering something. So like, I don't know what the balance is, but I can only imagine just from my own stuff that I write because I write a lot about my failures and, and things that yeah. didn't work. Um, and I think, you know, people appreciate that, that a lot more. There's that, there's this trend. It seems that I see on LinkedIn sometimes where people, I think there's a term for it and I may get it wrong. Apologize to the people that have the right term, but it's something along the lines of like building in front of everyone. Like you go on and you yeah, talk build about in public. Thank you very yeah. much for that. Like, this is an amazing trend. I think it leaves breadcrumbs for other people who have ideas or are trying to do things. Like you're, you're fundamentally leaving not only clues, but like actual, this is, I fogged up right here. Look at this, everybody. Come look how dumb I am. Come over here. Let me show you how dumb yeah. George is. You know what I mean? And like, there's something, I, I find it, it makes me want to cry sometimes when I see it. Cause I'm like, that's so beautiful. And thank you for failing right there. Like I, I'm going to use this in a way that is meaningful. So your mistake actually turned out to be something beautiful for me. And it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of heart and courage to do that. Right. Well, people don't want to be alone. Right. And, and like, actually like the, the kind of like news that these unicorns put out there, it's mm. like cookie cutter news yeah. and posts yep. and stuff. It's, it makes me feel and probably other people as well alone. Yep. Right. Like, I suck because all these other people are doing such great things and raising millions of dollars and hiring all the top talent. And I can't even get my revenue up. Like nobody's going to give me money. Right. So I think when you write about your failures, because everybody fails, yeah. right? Like how many investors do these people talk to before one investor gives them, you know, a lead investment and then some other investors follow like hundreds, but nobody ever talks about those. Right, because you don't want to be seen as a failure. You can't. Mm. So I love putting out content that, you know, is authentic to my experience. I only write about my own stories because nobody can dispute them. Right. Um, but it makes people feel less alone. Mm. And I love that, right? Because it is such a lonely journey. It was for mm. me too. Yeah. Right. Like living in New York, everybody's like, oh, I'm awesome. And you go to every startup event and everyone's telling you how awesome they are and how much money they raise and how, you know, and then it makes you feel like you're not doing very well and maybe you're not made for mm. this thing. Right. So I think that's what makes, you know, what, what I put out there more authentic, but I also want people out there to know that like what they're experiencing right now is normal. Right. I don't know. Yeah 
Who goes out there and launches a startup and builds it to a million dollars in 12 months? It does exist. Absolutely. But if you look at a lot of companies that do that, they've had previous successes. They've also had millions of dollars pumped into it. Mm -hmm. And they were able to buy revenue through relationships and ads because they had millions of dollars invested. That is not normal. So I like, I've, I actually put posts out there that like breaks down how many months did it take us to get to a million dollars and like from zero to 10,000, you know, 10,000 to 20,000, like how long it took like for each step. So like, I think that's the kind of stuff that like people want to see. Yes. Yes. And yes, I, I'm often reminded of this quote that something along the lines of when the instrument becomes the institution, it no longer has the sharp edge to cut through. So something along those lines, I kind of butchered the end there, but when the <laughs> instrument becomes the institution, that's when the corruption sets in. And sometimes when we look at the way in which tons of money tries to create the illusion of like a startup, I remember there was a great book by John Kiriako called Bad Blood. And it talked about the young lady who was going to have this, she had this incredible startup. I think she was a billionaire or I just remember reading part of the story. And she was going to take one drop of blood from this one drop yeah, of Theranos. blood. Theranos. She's right. now in jail. I don't yes. know why Adam Newman is not in jail, but she's in jail. <laughs> what an amazing story of just like corruption and deceit and all these people behind the scenes, like creating this Steve Jobs cutout lookalike in, in some sort of way. I, like the yeah, book but those was, people are psychopaths. They like, all actually, are. Like actually. Every one of them. Yeah. And then she like basically like this whole thing broke down and then she still went to Burning Man like a week later yeah. and like took selfies with her boyfriend who totally. I, know, I guess is like her now husband. I'm like, what? What is happening right now? <laughs> I, should, I don't know. It's all very weird. But then there's more of those. Weird. And that's not the end. Right. There's like a similar one, like yeah. Frank or something recently where this like 20 some year old, like, like made up this whole customer list, sold it to, I, I, I want to say it's like JP Morgan or whatever, like one of these big companies. And then they found out that all the customers were fake. It's like, you have yeah. all these Ivy League bankers on staff and nobody figured that out. And then she somehow also like was so crazy that she put herself on their payroll and, and got herself like $20 million a year in salary or something. It's like not, like, not only did you trick this company, you thought it was a good idea to be on their payroll and stay on their payroll, assuming they're not going to figure this out. Like you think you're so smart. I don't know. It's so crazy the kind of stuff that people come up with. But, you know, it, it, it sucks that this is the world that we live in because I think it does inspire the wrong things. Mm -hmm. It makes people feel like, if I can tell a lie, then I will make a lot of money yep. and be successful, right? Like, where do we draw the line? Like Adam Newman, like we were yep. completely crumbled, lost so much money for so many people and goes out to raise two massive rounds for different companies from top investors. What, is, what message does this send, right, to, to founders, right? Like it just, it doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense. It sends the wrong, it just sends the absolute power, corrupts absolutely. You know, I, I got a family member that investigates corporate security fraud and some of the stories they tell me is just, it's, it's the same stories like that. It's just mind blowing to see what, what message is out there and the level of psychopathy. Like these people are full blown psychopaths on some level. And it's, 
it's kind of disheartening to hear. But okay, but if we switch it back to stuff, I heard a really interesting story one time too that was I had a friend of mine that investigates corporate security fraud, and they tracked down this they tracked down this guy who embezzled tons of money from like all his shareholders and all like his employees, like something crazy, like a hundred million dollars. And the person tracks him down. They're investigating him, and they're like, they they find him, and he's when they finally get a hold of him on the phone. He's with his race car team in like Monaco or something, you know, and they're trying to grill him over the phone like, you son of a bitch. I can't. How do you sleep at night? You stole all this money from all these people. What kind of a monster are you? And the person was like, you know, first off, I spent my life building this place. I gave my family. I gave every ounce of my soul, my kids, my wife, my parents. Everything I loved is gone. And all I had left was this. And I don't know about you but you've probably never seen a hundred million dollars before. <laughs> so if you gave up everything in your life and you had a hundred million dollars sitting on the table and you were staring down prison, what the hell would you do? Click. You know what I mean? It was like, well, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound so bad. You know what I mean? On, on some level, you can begin to understand the threads that tie together this thought process of like, just burn the world, man. It's, it's kind of crazy, right? I mean, I, I will never know what that feels like. Um, Me but I like, I want to kind of bring this back to okay. something that is relevant. Like okay. I grew up thinking I needed that kind of wealth, like okay. really, and not understanding what it is required to get there. Like people that build these massive companies, like, yes, there's like a small percent that's fraudulent, but there's a lot that are not. And I don't think people really understand that when you have an ambition like that, that is your entire life. Mm. You don't, you don't have a normal life, right? You're in the public eye. You don't have relationships. Everybody right. wants something from you. You question all of your friends, right? That's why like when you know someone who's super rich, like they're really weird. Totally. Right. They're super guarded, right? Like they don't, they're very careful no about friends. what they say because who's listening, you know, like, so you have to want it so bad, so bad that you're willing to give up everything for it. And I don't know what drives these people. Right. Mm. And, and I, had this kind of like come to Jesus moment, I guess, when I was in New York. And like, that's kind of what I wanted to strive for. But also understanding that like, there's there's a difference between like having ambition and like understanding your capacity. Yes. Right? Like yep. they, they should be aligned, ideally. Like your ambition should be a lot, like a little bit higher, but not too much. If it's too much and you're just completely delusional. And I had a startup that was fine, but it was never going to get to that level. Right. So, and that was my previous startup. So I had this like moment where I was like, okay, what, like, why do I want that kind of wealth? Do I want it? Or is it because I was told that that's mm. the right thing to do? So it was kind of a big realization for me to realize that I don't want that kind of wealth because I am not willing to change okay. my life and, and sacrifice what is required to get there. And that's when, you know, I'm sure everyone's heard this term like lifestyle company where, you know, investors kind of like paint lifestyle companies as this bad word. And if you want a lifestyle company, you're not ambitious and, you know, you should just go home. Um, and that, but that's when I, I came to embrace the fact that I wanted a lifestyle company. I wanted a good lifestyle. I want to live and work at the same time. 
And it wasn't really until I embraced that, that I became okay with being a bootstrapper and mm -hmm. stopped wanting validation and raising capital and wanting to be in the cover of TechCrunch. And that's when I started to meet other bootstrappers and then saw that, oh, you know what? Like if anything between zero and, and a billion dollars is called bootstrapping, like <laughs> I'm okay with that. Or like it's called like a lifestyle business. I'm actually okay with that. You know, so like starting this company, I was, when I say I was more intentional about it, I was also more intentional about the goals that I set for myself, right? Like the financial goals that I set for myself to not be like delusional, right? I mm -hmm. wanted, I, I knew I wanted a company that pays me and everyone involved a good salary, right? Ideally like two times market salary. You know, I, I realize that I don't need to own all the nice cars and boats mm -hmm. and airplanes, like all of that, it's kind of meaningless. Right. Like, and, and the thing is like with the sharing economy, like you can have yeah. a weekend in a castle in Italy and then never see it again. Like how awesome is that? Right. I can <laughs> totally. drive a Ferrari for a weekend if I really wanted to and never own one and never have to put gas in it and like go service it. So we live in this economy in this world now where all of those luxuries are possible at a fraction of the cost, right? So, and I think that was like such a relief, mm -hmm. you know, that was such a load off my shoulders to not try to get to something that I know I'm not made for. And I think a lot of people are not like that self-aware yet, right? Because they just like, they yes. have this goal that like yep. everyone wants to get to yep. and they think they want it, but like, do you know what's required? Like, to your point, like people spend a lifetime mm. getting there. And then a lot of times they don't get to enjoy it either. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's the regret. Like, there's a great book by Guy Debord. It's just, he's an old French philosopher. And he, I think the book is called The Spectacle of Society. And in that book, he talks about what we're seeing and what we're living through is this idea of being into having and having into the illusion of having into the appearance of having. And it's like, you know, in some ways it's like, Oh, and, and once you start thinking about that all the way through, like all that's left is just to laugh. Cause you're like, Oh yeah. You know, like, of course I never had it. Of course it was an illusion, you know? And you just start laughing cause you fought so hard for this dream that you wanted to get. And then you realize like, gosh, darn it. I was being so silly. I should have just taken more time to tell this person I love them. I should have just taken a little bit more time to do this other thing, which brings me to this idea. I've been talking to a lot of death doulas lately, and I think this is relevant. You know, and anybody who reads biographies will know this. People in their last days, they don't ever say, I wish I would have worked harder. They don't ever say, I wish I would have had more money. They always say, I wish I would have been a better husband. I wish I would have been a better father. I wish I would have been a better mother. I wish I would have been a better sister. Like, and if we can piggyback on that language, that may help people get to the realization that you just said that I don't think I the picture is just now coming clear in my mind where you know what it takes to own that dream. It's ridiculous, but you could participate in that dream. And what's the difference between owning and participating in it? Sometimes it's, it's so much more beautiful to participate in somebody else's dream than it is to try to control all of the dream. But I, I love what you said there. It's beautiful. Yeah. Like, so David, my, my partner, he yeah. loves to say this one thing that like, you know, you, you, you love to own stuff until stuff starts to own you. Mm. Like, you know, like everyone's had that brand new car and you don't want to yeah. scratch it. So you take up two parking spots, <laughs> right? Totally. You have this like super expensive watch and you don't want to scratch it. So you put your sleeve over it. Yeah. 
Or like, I love like, you know, our grandparents, like they have this amazing leather couch and they like saran wrap it. Totally, totally. <laughs> and then you're just sitting on plastic. <laughs> you know, all this stuff that you own that you like, and then it starts owning you. Yeah. And it's so true, you know, like, and, and someone once told me before and he was like super successful and he was like, you know, the only people who want all the nice things like are the people that don't really have it, right? Like mm -hmm. they, they want other people to see it. It's mm -hmm. not, it's not for them. It's for you. Mm. And ever since I heard that, I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, my dad collected watches and like, and he was one of those people he like in, you know, on his deathbed, he was just like, oh, I wish I didn't buy so many things. It's like, we've been telling you mm. all these years because he didn't have stuff growing up. He was poor growing yeah. up. So then he wanted to like, he was like a huge overcompensator for material things. He had all this stuff, all these super expensive watches that he kept in a safe in the bank. <laughs> He never wore them. And now mm. he left me some of those and my mom won't let me take it out of that safe in the bank because I don't have a safe at home. It's ridiculous. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, yeah. and he would give us these like expensive jewelry and whatnot. Like, and I used to, you know, I used to wear those things. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as I heard that, I was like, you know what? Like, that's actually true. Like I used to wear those things because I wanted other people to see it. And ever since I understood that, like it just, didn't really matter to me anymore. And it's so liberating mm. when you stop trying to own stuff. And really like what we spend our money on is experiences and mm. sometimes with, with our friends. And like, those yeah. are the things that we care about most. Like we'll spend so much money like to, to go somewhere, travel somewhere, stay in a super nice hotel, go on an adventure. But like, we won't spend money on like material things unless it's like our home. Yeah. In some ways it echoes the humble bragger and the loudest barrel that we were talking about earlier. Right. And you don't, you don't even realize sometimes how dear, or I don't even realize how dear I hold some of my ideas until I start looking back on the way in which my parents held their ideas. And in some ways it speaks to, in, in some ways for me, it speaks to the idea of, of patterns and self-responsibility. I guess by looking, so I know I'm kind of going off topic a little bit right here, Melissa, but I, in some ways it seems to me that there's a generational pattern that happens to us. And if we as individuals today can look back at the generation that came before us and see what their difficult things were, what they held on to, what they were good at, what they need to work on, if we can look at them as a lens, then we living today can fundamentally change the outlook of those tomorrow. We can radically transform our life by looking at the patterns of the people that came before us and look, oh, they held on to this idea. Maybe I should learn from that. Because too often the patterns that are given to us are just things that we act out and we don't think about. It takes a lot of courage to look back and just share the story that you shared with me. Hey, George, on my dad's deathbed, he held these things. Like that takes a lot of courage to be open and say that about your family. But you can learn from that because you have the courage to think about that from a unique perspective, right? Like, I think that there's a lot of people, myself included, that are beginning to see the problems of the people in our past as catalysts for positive change in the future. Is that too deep out there? What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it can go like one, kind of one way or the other. Sure, you know, like you could be like, I just become my parents, or you can yeah, be like, I totally. hate the way my parents are. Like my parents right. are such hoarders. <laughs> I hate going to their place. It is just full of stuff. 
They refuse to throw anything away. And I think it does come from like this mentality of lack. Sure. Right. Like I didn't, I like luckily because of them, I didn't, you know, I didn't live in that. It, you know, I didn't grow up with that mindset because they provided everything for us. But because of how much I hate how they hoarded everything and and don't Mm -hmm. throw anything away, I became super OCD about throwing things away and, and like a crazy minimalist and not spending money on things. Right. Like, so I think it, I think it can, you know, work both ways. Um, but you know, it's, it's all like, I guess it's all personality based, right? It would be amazing if we all learned from our past and like right. became better people. But I also want to recognize <laughs> that like, it's just easier to fall in the patterns, right? <laughs> yeah. Our patterns, our thoughts become us. They say that you're- my, da- my dad was like, if I die, don't throw away my collection of coins. It's like, you want to hoard after you die? Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, he like wants to make sure that we do not throw any of his things away. It's like, but you're dead. Yeah, I, I don't get it, but that's how far, that's how deeply rooted this this goes. That it is deep. It's interesting to think about the way in which we act out our lives and how so much we might be so much we may be afraid of today could be something that our great grandfathers or our great grandmothers were afraid of so long ago, or it could be the fact that they grew up in this depression. So now all of a sudden, yeah. like I don't want to throw away any of the straws I get from McDonald's because I need those. <laughs> I got to keep this yes. ketchup packet, even though it's yeah. like four years old. That person we have to, we have to have an intervention for. <laughs> it's fascinating to think about. I know, um, how you doing on time? Melissa, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Epic. You know, one of my I mean, favorite- you did send me an invite, so I know. have that time blocked. <laughs> I know. I'm just checking. You know what I mean? There's an off-ramp over there. I always want to point it out to people. You know what I mean? Like, hey, are we doing okay over here? <laughs> I love this conversation. And I, I, w- I want to take a moment to maybe pivot into this idea of something I'm really fond of. Like I love the psychedelic experience. And one of the reasons I love it so much is because it's really helped me deal with a lot of traumas in my life. You know, maybe 10 years ago, my son died. And when I reunited my relationship with psychedelics, it really gave me a new perspective on the way that the world speaks to us, through us. And ever since then, I've, I've been able to kind of use psychedelics to see the world in a different way. It's helped with my relationships. It's really helped me get a better understanding of what I want out of life. And as someone who has recently been to Burning Man, I'm, and as someone who may have a relationship with psychedelics, I'm curious to get your thoughts on psychedelics. What do you think? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would say yes to all those things. Um, I mean, I don't know how, like for listeners, you know, I don't know how like much they know about psychedelics. Um, I guess it could be a teacher, but it can also be like just a straight up fun thing. Yes. Um, I am not a huge fan of mushrooms. I used to be, but it just like, it just doesn't make me feel great. Like physically, it doesn't make me feel great. It makes me feel like super lethargic, but Mm. I know the impacts of it. Um, and Funny story, actually, like when I was in New York, someone like gave me this, you know, microdosing was cool back then when I was living in New York. And she gave me this like microdosing bottle that she got from San Francisco from this hippie. I didn't know what microdosing was. I was like reading up on it. And it was like, this stuff was hard to get, you know, like I'm not like, I mean, now I'm more in that community, but you know, back then I had no idea what I was doing. I was curious about it. And she gave me this like microdose droplet bottle. 
And she was like, oh, I don't, I'm going to Israel. I don't want to take this with me here. You have it. And one of the first times David and I like did LSD in broad daylight, which is like really the only time you should ever do it, <laughs> is when I accidentally poisoned us with this yeah. dropper bottle. Because she was, I was like, I texted her. I was like, oh, so how many drops do we do? And I was like, I, I told David, I was like, hey, I was reading a lot about this microdosing thing. Like, do you want to try it this week and see what mm -hmm. happens? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm down for it. And we were not very experienced with this stuff back then. And I texted my friend. I was like, hey, how many, so how many drops, you know, do I take? And she was like, oh, like 10. And so I was like, I went to David. I'm like, okay, 10. And he's like, that seems like a lot. And I'm like, well, that's yeah, what totally. she said. So we're like in Chile at the time. And like right before we were about to go on this road trip with a friend. And so, you know, I give us like both 10 drops or whatever. I'm on a work call. He's on a call with his son. And all of a sudden he texts me from across the hotel lobby. He's like, I'm getting really high. I'm like, yeah, so am I. And I text my friend. I was like, so how many drops did you say? She was like, yeah, like 10 drops of full dose. So do like two. <laughs> <laughs> so I just like what? accidentally gave ourselves like a full dose. And right. at that point, like you're committed. Guaranteed. And, and, and then I actually, the thought crossed my mind that I'm like, if I don't tell him, will he notice? Because <laughs> I didn't, I never want to be wrong. Right. So I'm just like, right. Shit. Right. Like, because I, but when he was like, oh, 10 seems like a lot. I'm like, no, no, no. She told me 10. So it's 10. So anyway, we ended up actually having like the best time because we'd never done this in broad daylight. And apparently mm. it's, you know, it is the only time you should do it. And our friend ended up doing the road trip, um, you know, driving for us. But that was actually one of the first times that we've ever been on it. But I mean, I think it's, I think I used to do a lot of like hypnotherapy, receiving mm -hmm. it, not giving okay. it. And I think all this stuff like psychedelics, you know, meditation, you know, right. hypnotherapy, it's a different way to get to the same place, right? If you're not just looking to like have a great time with your friends, which is also great, you know, right. if, if that's what you're using it for. But I used to do it, you know, some of the stuff on my own and, you know, put on some, put on some music, turn off the lights and see what happens. And... I want to say I, I have had my most creative ideas, you know, in those moments. Um, but I was also able to, and, and maybe that's the point of this, also able to, in my toughest entrepreneur moments where mm -hmm. nothing seems to be working, to be able to strip, you know, my conscious mind, you know, all the doubts and all the fears. Yeah. And be, I guess, fully in touch with my own ability, if, if that makes sense, right? Like when you, Perfect. when everything is against you in your conscious life and you just feel like you're not making it, everything sucks. You have no ability to make this go. And when you're in those moments and you use this as a teacher, you're able to strip all that bullshit away yeah. Yeah. and be like, you know what? Like I am capable because I've done all this other stuff and mm -hmm. I am like, I can overcome this. It is just an obstacle. And someone once told me like, you can't unlearn what you already know. And if you can align your subconscious mind as much as you can to your conscious mind, you are at your most powerful. Right. And I guess the toughest thing about doing these things is like, you forget those things. It's like coming out of a dream. 
right? You feel a certain way. You feel really powerful in those moments. But as you come out of it, you forget that feeling. So you can be at your most powerful if you allow yourself to remember those feelings and how you got there. And it's almost like going to the gym, right? It's an exercise. Mm-hmm. And that's why sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's helpful to journal in those moments. It's, it's helpful to record yourself in those moments because you want to remember that you are that person, right? Just because you're on psychedelics and you're not doesn't make you a different yes. person, right? It's just how in touch you are with your own abilities and your power to do what you want to do. Right. So, and that's how I see it, like from a perspective of like creativity and allowing you to be a a better, maybe more um, at peace and a more powerful version of yourself. I think it's, it's an amazing experience. Right. And maybe not everybody wants 10 drops Mm -hmm. at the same time. (laughs) But start with two or three <laughs> and get you there. I mean, like, and that's what I used to do. Um, nowadays, I have a lot less, I guess, time to, to, sure. to, you know, get into get into those things. And, you know, living in Amsterdam, like I have a lot of friends that get into like, you know, ayahuasca ceremonies mm-hmm. and, you know, those things that like, I don't feel like I'm ready for. Yeah. It has to call you. Um Like it, in a lot of ways, like, I don't feel like I'm ready to really look at what's under the hood. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm on a roll. Like I, you know, I'm doing this thing and I don't want to be disrupted in, in, in what I'm doing. And, and I know that like, it's actually supposed to be the opposite of that. Um, but I don't feel like I'm ready for kind of the next level. Uh, but I'm curious to hear, hear your thoughts on like, you know, how you've seen people kind of use this professionally and, um, maybe how, you know, it's helped you. First off, that's an awesome story. David sounds like an amazing guy. I'm, he's got an amazing girl. You guys sound like an amazing team. I can't imagine. Oh, shoot, we did 10. You know, on, 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 a, on a similar story, I was mixing like a full disclosure. No one should ever do this. This is totally stupid. Don't ever do this. I was I was mixing up like a like a gram. I had got like a I'd gotten like some powdered form of Ethlad, which is like a derivative of LSD. And I was mixing it up, right? Because I was going to put it in a liquid form and it was in a powder form. And so you have to research all these ideas. Like why does everybody want to drop to be a hundred mics? Do you have any idea how difficult it is to take like a crystalline format and put it in and, and try to distill it down? So one drop is a hundred micrograms. Like you need a lot of equipment for that. I don't have that. And it's kind of dumb anyway. Like I'm going to take one drop. I have to get like a certain kind of dropper for that. Why don't I try it? Why don't I make it like a hundred milliliters? So I'll just, I'll just increase the amount of alcohol and then I can, instead of making it one drop, I'll make it hundred milliliters, right? Cause it's way easier to measure. And so as I'm thinking about all this stuff, I'm like mixing and I'm like, do, 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 do. And I'm like, I should probably wear gloves. And then as soon as I said, I should probably wear gloves. I'm like, <gasps> my heart just starts thundering. I get like this taste of like blood in my mouth. It's not blood, but like, it's all like tinny. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <gasps> Oh my God, I'm the dumbest person in the world. I'm touching this. And like, start losing control of like reality a little bit. Like I should just throw everything away. Get out of here. I start freaking out. And I'm like, okay, just calm down. Calm down, man. It's like two in the morning. Just calm down. Put this over here. Go lay down for a little bit. And so I, I laid down for like, a, like three or four hours. And I finally like, okay, okay. I feel really clean. I feel pretty good about myself. I'm definitely awake. I'm definitely up, but I'm not cuckoo. Okay, let's go back and fix this problem. So I fixed it, but this idea that you can take one or two drops and have it be a full dose or you deal with this chemical, it's so power. It has the power power to transform reality instantly. 
And that is something that is spoken about in the spirituality books from, from here to eternity. It will be spoken about in Buddhist monasteries and Christian churches and, you know, from faiths all around the world. And it, it's life changing. I'm not saying that people should take this experience lightly. I'm saying the opposite of that. But the powers that come from just one particular incident can fundamentally change the way you see yourself. And much like any environment, if you're going to build a relationship with any of these chemicals, you should obviously do your research. You should talk to people. You should read. You should spend more time in the library than you do using psychedelics because that's how you learn how to use them. So that being said, I, I love what you said about the way in which it allows you to remember who you are. It gives you this unique perspective. Almost For me, it's almost a third-person point of view of looking at my life, where I am, where I was, and where I can go. In some ways, it reminds me of Martin Luther King's speech, I've been to the mountaintop, because I feel like for a moment, you get to go to the mountaintop and look down. You can't stay there, but you can go up and you can look, and you can be like, oh, crap, I started way over there. I started way over there. I was at the bottom, and now I'm up here. You know, you get so excited, and then you're like, okay, okay, okay. Where am I going? Oh, God, I'm going over there. And the trick is to not be, you know, um, death by astonishment because everything around you seems so marvelous. But if you can focus in these environments, you go to the mountaintop, you can look where you were, be excited that you've made it somewhere. Be excited for the progress that you've made and make sure that you reward yourself for the journey. Look where you are. Okay, where are you going to go from there? If, if past relevant behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, then understand the trajectory you're on is either a good one or it's one you need to change. But that is very difficult to do when you're conditioned by the daily, the daily cycle of life. Get up, go to work, come home, get up. You know, Whenever we find ourselves conditioned by our daily times, it's very difficult for us to see the progress we're on. So for me, I think echo, psychedelics echo what you were speaking about, this, I, this ability to transform our lives in a powerful way and present ourselves with who we really are. We're so much more than a race from the hospital to the graveyard. And for a long, for myself, for people in my family, and a lot of people I love, it's very easy to get caught up in that rat race. And I think so many people that have creative powers and creative ability and want a better life for themselves are caught in that cycle. So psychedelics can be a profound way to Get yourself out of that cycle. That was a long rant. I, I tend to do that sometimes. So I apologize for that. But I'm passionate about it, Melissa. Yeah, I mean, do? I mean, I think it also like gives you so much clarity about yes. the things that are important and the things that aren't. You know, like we do a lot of things because we think we have to, or someone told us, or like it's the right thing to do. And yeah. when you strip away all those expectations, right? Which is really what psychedelics right. do you see everything in its purest form. And you're like, actually, I don't care about all that stuff. Like, just stop doing those other things, right? And focus yeah. on this thing. And that's a yep. clarity that, that I love. Um, and before David, like, I would do this on my own. Yeah. Like, I love the, the self kind of journey of, like, just going, just going through it on my own. Um, but since I met him, it's become a more social experience because he, mm -hmm. he just can't do anything on his own. Like he literally can't do anything on his own and definitely not this. So I have my moments where like we are doing this kind of for fun, but I secretly mm -hmm. 
you know, in my mind, I'm like, okay, this sure. is the answer that I'm seeking. Um, <laughs> and I don't tell him about it because he just hates it when I like go into my own cocoon. <laughs> he like feels lonely. So, like, and he's super fun, which is why he needs to be doing all these experiences together. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just every time I do th that, you know, and, um, you know, I don't get many experiences or met much time now, you know, to, to go right. into those kind of those things. But every time I come out of it with more clarity and more confidence. Yeah. Um, and that reminds me that maybe I need to do it again soon. <laughs> yeah, you totally do. You totally do. Well, you were just recently at Burning Man. I'm sure you were surrounded by people that were living in that environment for quite some time, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, Raining Man. No, Raining Man. <laughs> it's Raining Man. Um, I actually, yeah, like, I mean, this, this, this Burning Man was so much more about survival <laughs> than it was about, like, just going out there and blowing your mind. Um, I would say that I'm more exposed to it just being, like, mm -hmm. in Amsterdam. Yeah. Like, cause that's just what people do. Like it's what yeah. people care about and they have retreats. Like they actually have like, you know, retreats that are built for this thing and they invite, it's like a three day thing. It's like an executive right. retreat. So it's like a real thing there. Um, and every month there's like ayahuasca ceremonies that are like, you know, 10 to 20 people and there's like shamans and stuff that are yeah. like, everything's guided. So it's like done sure. in a very professional way. I've never been exposed to that until like, I, I didn't think it was like, you know, like an everyday thing. Um, like everybody accepts it. Like, that's what I mean. Until I, you know, went to the Netherlands, but you know, I think it should be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say like, I'm more, I'm more educated about that now, not because of, you know, going to Burning Man and, and those type of events, but actually like living in a country <laughs> where all of that is like pretty normal. Yeah. You live in the Mecca right there. There's there's a great school called, I'm probably going to butcher it, Maastricht University. They just have like, it's like just this giant university of geniuses that go there. And they're doing yeah. a lot of work on psychedelics and how, what the intersection of psychedelics and technology are. In fact, Zeus, if you're listening to this, you should reach out to Melissa because she's awesome just like <laughs> you, Zeus. I'll talk, I'll talk to you guys later offline. But he's doing some fascinating work where he's integrating the ideas of the psychedelic experience into augmented and virtual reality and like you I, I gotta you have to talk to this guy he's so amazing he uh he grew up with like this voodoo background you know and so he's like when we were talking about this intersection of psychedelics and technology he's like what i'm saying george is that in the future you may have to have a substance that prepares your mind for this new experience like he talks in such an awesome way and like it's just so beautiful and poetic but the ideas he was talking out are coming from Amsterdam, right where you are. And they're one of the only schools that's actually working with people because they don't have the limits that so many other schools have. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on what, what the future of psychedelics and technology could be? I mean, there are so many. I mean, I, I, mean, I guess states, provinces, countries that are sure, trying sure. to legalize some of this stuff for like research purpose, at least, right? Yeah. Or like medicinal purpose. I mean, I think we're a long ways from like the general public kind of accepting sure. that. I think like, we, you know, we've all been brainwashed, you know, with the war on drugs and we categorize. It's like there's like LSD or like crystal meth. You know? totally, like, totally, yeah. It's just like, what? Those two are like not the same thing. Um, I remember like David was filling out this insurance policy um, questionnaire and it was like, have you ever done drugs? And then it's like, 
a list of drugs and it's like ketamine, uh, heroin. It's like, how are those two things in the same category? You know, like you check one of these things and you'll never get a policy again. Totally. (laughs) But that's, that's how I think most people categorize it because it's like Hollywood, right? Or, you know, whatever propaganda the news sets. It's like, you're like one snort away from being homeless. (laughs) Don't believe any of those things. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't, I think that, um, I wish more people would explore. Yeah you know, this avenue, um, you know, not just kind of, not just as a way of understanding themselves, like, which is what we're talking about. Like, right. it's just for, like for health reasons, you know, I have a friend that's a surgeon in Newcastle, not White Castle, White Castle is a burger <laughs> joint, Newcastle. <laughs> and, you know, it's in the UK and there's not much to do there and people drink a lot. And right. he was like, like he was like, I wish I could tell people to stop drinking and just do psychedelics yeah. because their bodies are so messed up from how much they're drinking, like in their teens, even yep. like he's like livers are like three times the size, right? Like mm-hmm. these people are not going to live past 30. And so I wish that, you know, I think alcohol is the, the most unhealthy and most dangerous drug, right? I'm right. Like I drink, you know, socially, but like yeah. heavy, heavy drinking is like really bad for you. I think more, like probably most people die from alcohol than like yeah, absolutely stop like those kind of like soft drugs, right? I don't, I don't know anything about heroin. I don't, <laughs> I don't recommend taking it. Um, <laughs> but those two, those are not the same, right? There's not. I, I think right. I just, I wish more people would would use it, you know, yeah. not just in a way to, to learn more about themselves, but also like for recreational purpose. But how it like how it's, you know, where the intersection is with that and technology, like I'm actually not sure. Like I'm not really seeing the intersection right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be super cool if somehow you could like record your experience. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that would like. That was almost like recording a dream, you know? Yeah. Um, and that would be, that would be epic. Like if you could just like download your experience um, or if you could, I don't know anything about science or biology, but like, you know, that feeling you get the one that we're talking about where you feel powerful mm-hmm. and confident, right? Like I wish there was a way where you could record that like biologically and have a way to get there again without going on a 10 hour journey. <laughs> You know I what I mean? Like, I if do. it was like a chemical balance thing, it totally is. Right? That would be that would be amazing, right? If we could have like a customized drug, it's like the limitless thing, right? That yeah, movie, I love that like movie. If we, if we could have like a customized version of that, because that's our chemical makeup, and that's mm-hmm. where we want to get to, and that's how we get there. Like, that would be pretty pretty epic. That would be. Amazing. I, I, there's a really, I interviewed this author, David Walton, who wrote a series of books called Living World. And it, it's a science fiction book about, a, about dinosaurs on the earth that communicated through pheromones and how much better of a language it was than the, the language we use today in words. And it was this, it was a hierarchy of women dinosaurs that ruled the world. And they communicated all through pheromones, but they communicated confidence. They communicated fear. And in some ways, it sounds to me like maybe there's something to be said about these pheromones and psychedelic states. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to think about finding a way to record 
this feeling or this this dreamlike state that you could then be part of or or share with other people. In some ways, you know, maybe the drugs are the software and we're the hardware. Like if you look at alcoholism and the way alcohol, look at look at all the ideas we create running on alcohol. If we look at our species running on alcohol, we come up with a lot of violent ideas, the same way a drunk person wants to fight all the time. But what if we ran on the software of psychedelics like mushrooms or LSD? Might we might we have something more like the 60s where we ran a little bit more on our, our ideas radiated love or our ideas radiated creativity, you know? And I, I don't know. I, I think on some level we are the manifestation of what we take in. And if we're running, if we can agree that most societies run on chemicals or drugs derived from plants, we should stop. We should really stop making alcohol like the very driver of our ideas because so much of our, so much of what we're doing seems to not be working. And if that theory worked at all, it'd be much better to be running on mushrooms or psychedelics or. I, I mean, know, we are like, if you're looking at us as like hardware, okay. And say drugs yes. is like software that yes. like, you know, changes the hardware. Like we're already doing that through like vitamins or, yeah, you know, like I have a friend who's just like a crazy body hacker and like he studies all this stuff and like mm-hmm. he could go to a three day festival and not sleep. Like, I'm not saying like, that's like a really good thing, but he like, right. his whole idea is when you're doing all the stuff and partying and having fun with your friends and taking all the stuff, like your body is depleted of certain things, mm-hmm. like certain vitamins. And he has a whole massive like vitamin regimen that he takes before, during, and after. And that allows him to have energy for like three days. And like, and to the point where like his gift you know, to, in the last yeah. festival that we had was like, he made these custom little pouches with like 15 vitamins in them. And he would just like give them to people so that like, awesome. you know, yeah. And it's all, and it works. Um, yeah. you know, so we're already doing that in, in different ways. Right. And maybe one day we'll, we'll get there, um, <clears throat> to change our minds or run our bodies yeah. on, on something like a bit more psychedelic than vitamins. <laughs> We may never see that day in our lives, but I hope, I hope we will. Yeah, me too. I, I, it's, I feel like we live in such an incredible time. And when I think about psychedelics and getting our time back and the creator economy, you know, something that you and I both do, our podcast hosts, you have your own podcast. And I was reading a recent article that you had spoken about, about the way in which you've harnessed the power of the podcast. You tell the story of, well, maybe I just let you tell the story. Maybe you can tell your story about how you developed eWebinar, your business strategies, and what you think podcasts are today and moving forward. Yeah, so I had, I mean, I, I did season one of a podcast called mm-hmm. Profit Led. And the whole idea was, I mean, my, my whole like vibe right now is right. to let entrepreneurs know that they can bootstrap a company and be successful. And that success is self-defined. Like that, that is like the whole thing that I'm advocating for. So my season one of Profit Led is really interviewing other bootstrap founders and strategists to share stories and ideas of how they've done it. But actually the primary reason why I wanted to start that podcast was because I wanted to, I wanted a side project. Like I wanted like a creative side project that was not related to my software Because software, I I don't know if most people know this, if they're not in software, is like, it's not tangible, right? So you're not feeling success for a long time. Mm. You're you're actually just getting into debt for a long time. (laughs) 
And I've only started paying myself in the last two months and like not a real salary and have do, been doing this for four years. So, you know, I wanted something that I could feel success from that was like a product that was like tangible. Um, and I wanted to learn how to run a podcast on my own. Like everybody was trying to sell me podcast services and I'm like, I'm just going to learn how to do it on my own. Yeah. But they were charging like one to 2000 per episode. And I'm like, let me try to figure this out. Um, so that was like the primary reason. Um, and of course, like the secondary reason is like, I wanted to get my name out there, build credibility. Like there is nothing that builds more credibility than a podcast or a video. But the best thing about a podcast is you can listen to it in two times speed in the gym, on the way to work, when you're walking along the street, like, like I've always been a consumer of podcasts mm -hmm. and I love how easy it is. And, you know, and it's almost like a low commitment, you know, it's low commitment content. And there's a lot of great content out there. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and of course, like when you hear someone speak or when you see their face, I think it changes that relationship. And we talk about like meeting, like meeting friends, quote unquote friends, having never met them, like having never meet them in real life. I think podcasting and videos is kind of the best way to do that. Um, so as it relates to my business, that's kind of like, you know, an indirect, you know, marketing channel. And of course I put, you know, an e-webinar ad, you know, in the middle. Yeah. Um, but actually along the way, um, I realized by running this podcast that there's so many business interviews out there. Like, I'm not talking like this conversation we're having cause it's like business slash lifestyle, right. but like, you know, I invite like a business guru, a tech guru, and I interview them on how they became successful. Like there's so many out there. And then I, I realized halfway through this podcast that I was just like, just a number and I was not as good of a host as all these other hosts. I've been doing it for years. And the reason I also capped it at like 15 episodes is because I wasn't sure if I wanted to commit to it. But at the same time, um, I was, you know, writing on LinkedIn like four to five times a week, writing my own experiences, stories of bootstrapping three startups. And I realized just from feedback of the content that I put out there on LinkedIn, how little authentic, like real relatable content is out there about building companies. So actually my next season, uh, which I'm going to start recording soon is actually about our journey to a million. Nice. And I'm just going to create our own content. There's no interviews. And my, myself and my COO, who's actually the first person I started helping me on, on a webinar is just going to talk like about one topic per episode on something that we did. So it could be like pricing mistakes or like how we came up with a name or like, how do you recruit someone without any resource? Right. Or like, you know, customer horror stories or, you know, how long it took us to get to a million. Like, like every episode will be one specific topic on our journey to a million. And I feel like that's actually the content that's missing, not like more tech guru interviews. So that's kind of like, and, and I, I, and I actually believe that like most founders, if they don't have any money to spend on marketing, like if they're not leveraging podcasts as like a marketing channel, like a lot of them are, are kind of free, free podcasts, then they're missing out on a huge, you know, audience. So actually in the past year I've been on, I think I've been on like a hundred podcasts <laughs> just in the last 12 months. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, as it relates to my business, I'm actually not sure like revenue wise, like a lot of people say like, Oh, you do this thing on LinkedIn or you do this thing on podcasting. Like how much revenue do you attribute? <laughs> like if I only did things I can attribute right. revenue to, I'd be doing nothing. Right. Right. Like it's, it's just, 
you never know where and when someone's going to hear about you. You can only be there, you know, when they might be there. So I think a lot of my life is like spent on, you know, creating content. Yeah. It's, I have a unique view and I, I, I echo some of the same things. It, when I think about podcasting, only recently have I begun to see it not only as a product, but as a service. And when I look at it from that angle, I'm like, it just does so much. It's branding, it's marketing, it is an educational device. Like it's all these things. And if you can get really good at it, I think that those can all be branches that come off of it. You can have this one vehicle. It's like, hey, why don't you get in? I'm going to take you for a little ride over here. I'm going to show you this little educational thing. Jump in. I'm going to take you over here and show you this marketing part of it. But it, it's, I think it speaks to the idea of the creator economy and these new things that are beginning to emerge and the, the branches of revenue that come from them. Like it's, it's, it's really exciting to think about where we are and it's kind of the creator economy seems to be at the forefront, like the leading edge of what is possible. Do you think so? Yeah. I mean, that comes back to the idea of control, right? Yes, like, absolutely. And, you know, all these creators used to be in corporate jobs and yep. they were really good at what they were doing and they built an audience. A lot of them did it early on, but it's still possible right now. Yep. Like the best data start is today. Um, but they're <laughs> capitalizing on their experience mm -hmm. and that's awesome. Right. I love solo entrepreneurs and creators. Like I wish I was a solo entrepreneur. <laughs> like I wish I didn't have a company with 10 people, you know, like if I were to do it again, like that's what I would be doing. Like, what can I capitalize on? That's just me, myself and I, <laughs> but I think it's awesome that like technology allows for that. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, I don't take that lightly because it, it is so, so hard to build an audience. Like when you, if you build it, they won't come, <laughs> you know, like you have to, you have to go and find these people. Yeah. Like, I don't know how, like, how long have you been doing your podcast for? I've been doing it for five years. And I, I just yelled out into the wind for so long. Like, hey, everybody, look at me. Hey, I got and something like, cool to show was, you. What was your intention for starting it? And how has that changed over time? First off, thank you for asking. I think my intention at starting it was trying to prove to myself that I'm better than I was, that I'm original and that I want, I can help people in ways that I'm not doing now. And that resonated with me because I, I wanted, I, I felt like I was wasting part of my life. I felt like I'm really good at this job I was doing. I was a UPS driver for 26 years and I, I really enjoyed the communication and the people but I couldn't, part of me began to die inside when this new world emerged of COVID and unrealistic production standards and watching my friends get hurt and then watching no one stand up and something began to die in me. And, and maybe, maybe it was something developing inside of me, but it was, it was this, this, this need to try and reach out and show people like, hey, be, I wanted to be the change that I wanted to see in the world. Cause I tried to tell everyone, Hey, you should do these things with your life, but that didn't work. And so for me, I was like, I gotta, I gotta be the change. I gotta be the person that does it. So when, when I started off, it was me just trying to create some change in my life. And the more that I started, I started off with just like some solo rants and, and investigating magnets and like, Hey, watch what this <laughs> magnet does over here. You know what I mean? And I did some cool experiments where I would, um, 
I took some seeds and I exposed, I tried to grow mushrooms with like seeds that were exposed to the North pole of a magnet and see if those grow better, you know, just some stuff I would do around the house anyway, but I started putting it online. And then after a while I started doing book reviews. And then after a while, a PR firm reached out to me and they were like, Hey, um, we noticed you're doing a lot of book reviews. Would you like to talk to one of our authors? And I was like, absolutely. And then that started this new flow of like, all of a sudden, uh, people started reaching out to me from like an Ivy League school, like this, like uh, Joseph Sassoon from Georgetown, like his publisher reached out and was like, would you like to interview Dr. Sassoon? I was like, uh, absolutely. So then, and then all of a sudden people started sending me free books and I'm like, two people are sending me free stuff, man. Telling my wife, you're sending me free books, you know? And, and then I would read their books and I, I would go out of my way to like read their book and like, and have all these notes in the column. Like, okay, no one's ever asked him this question before. I'm going to ask him this question because I bet you this is how his dad thought. And I bet you if I ask him about that, his dad, that'll bring about an idea that maybe he wants to talk about. So I would just go in depth and try to think of things that no one else would ask. And then from there, it turned into, hey, I have like 10 followers, a hundred followers, you know, a thousand followers. And it just kind of snowballed into there. And then it, it it's really, you know what? Listen, you had said something to me in a previous engagement that really speaks to me. Cause you said, George, as a podcaster, as your solo gig, that must be really hard. Like you're the only person out of like 500 people that's ever said that to me. And it is in some ways it's believing in yourself when no one else will. But my message to everybody out there is that's what it takes. Just when everybody tells you, you can't do it. When no matter what, no matter how hard it is, just believe in yourself when no one else will. And I promise you, the world will unfold in front of you the way it's supposed to. So for me, it's it's transformed into this thing that I do daily. I try to do eight podcasts a week. I try to package it to the people I'm I'm talking to as as a as a vehicle, as a um, product, and as a service. And I feel and this is your full time. Like do you, this is it. Do you, this is it. Okay. This is it. Yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah. Not many people are able to to get there. Yeah, I mean, very few. I, I, I get it. And are it's you hard. like are you making money off sponsorships or or like donations? I took a second on my house. I've been doing it for five years. I took a second on my house about seven months ago, and I'm pretty much funding everything through that. I do get donations Maybe. from people, yeah, yeah. and some people will pay me a little bit for ads, but I had to go get those ads. It wasn't like I sat around and waited for people to get them. Like I. I have my, um, I got through Transistor, which is my platform, and they allow for dynamic ad insertion. I highly recommend it for people that are looking to do it, but no ads are going to come. You have to go chase down the ads. So if I talk yeah. to someone that's doing a book, I'll be like, look, why don't you pay me 50 bucks or 100 bucks and I'll mid roll it? Or why don't you do this? But the model's out there. If you're willing to create the model, the model's out there for you to create. And especially now in this landscape where it is the creator economy, you can make the rules. There's no set yeah. rules right now. So it's kind of this blue ocean strategy where you can, hey, these are the rules. How do you know? Because I made them up. <laughs> That's why they're the rules. <laughs> yeah. I mean, someone once told me like if when someone says it can't be done, what they're really saying is I've never seen it done before. Or I can't do it. And yeah, or I can't do it. And I, and I think that's, like it used to bother me when people say those things, right? But it doesn't anymore because yeah. I just don't care what people say. Um, I love it. But it also takes... It's like an exercise, right? It's like being yeah. in sales. I've been in sales for a long time. So it's like not caring about what people think is a muscle that you need to work yeah. out. And it still hurts a little bit, you know? It's just how long you let it impact you for. Mm -hmm. And you definitely should not change your own path 
based on what someone else thinks you're capable of. Yeah. Because they don't know. They have no idea. Yeah. And I think that that's where resentment begins to build. When you, when you allow someone else to tell you what you can and you can't do and you start believing them, that's where the seeds of resentment begin to plant themselves. And well, It's hard not me, to believe them sometimes because you're not oh successful. Oh, God, I know. I right? Know. It's like, well, yeah. they're just validating what I already think about myself. This is actually one of the reasons I, I stopped talking to my parents for a while because they okay. were so negative that I just couldn't have them like I couldn't talk to them and have them tell me that I should just go get a job mm -hmm. like it's like I've, I've already told myself this many yeah. times a day I tell myself yeah. that I can't do it and then when you check in yeah. you tell me that I can't do it <laughs> and and that's really tough yeah you know and even if they're your parents like sometimes you just have to like either you just choose not to talk about that stuff to them or in my case I just had to stop talking to them for a while like it was just like just a negative dark hole that I was, that I was in. But yeah, like if, if for, but then for anyone who kind of like triumphs over that, like it is yes. so liberating. Like you're so glad that you didn't give up in the moment that you, that you were supposed to, because giving up is the easy thing to do. And that's why most people don't do this. If it were easy, everybody would be doing it and you wouldn't be special. Yeah. It, there's a real point where your relationships are called into question. Like, what are you doing? Are you doing the right thing? Who are you doing the right thing for? Is this, is this you, want it, you want it that bad? Is it you that wants it? Who wants it? You know, like you have to ask some really deep questions about what's right for you and your family. And, you know, when I look back at some of the decisions I've made, one of the, one of the most beautiful things that I tell myself and I, I, I see happening is that I don't want my daughter to grow up and be in a position where she has to go work. I can tell her everything in the world, but I don't want her to be in a position. If she wants to work for someone, that's fine. But I want her to be in a position and have somebody who had the courage to strike out and make it on their own because that's what I want her to do. And if I tell her, you can do it, but I'm not doing it, then I'm sending the wrong message. I want her to see somebody that can do it. And in doing so, even if I go back to doing other things, at least she sees her father, the man, that one of the men she loves in her life, following his dreams and his passion. Because that's what the, that's the kind of guy I want her to be with, you know? And so I think that yeah, what we do awesome. in our lives. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Thanks that's that. awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, now, now look at me. I'm talking about my family and ranting about all my personal problems. <laughs> Thanks, Melissa. <laughs> it's a fascinating conversation, Melissa. I am... What, I'm super thankful for all of our time today. Did we cover any? Did we cover anything that you? We did not cover anything that you wanted to cover. Um, I think I think we've covered a probably a wider set of topics than I thought we would go into. But I guess that's the point of this 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 yeah. podcast, right? It's just like let it flow. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I I really that's the point of the podcast is just to get to know people and have an honest conversation that people can listen to and whether they're in the gym or in their car or in their truck or their car, something that people can talk to. I think the real heroes are the people that are out there every day making it happen. Whether you're, you know, whatever you're doing, you're making it happen. And I think that these conversations at the forefront are the most important conversations for people to listen to, especially in this time where the pace of change is happening so quickly and that the world is changing all around us. 
the truth is that the hero is the person that gets up and is out there doing it every day. People like you, Melissa, you're the hero. Thank you. Well, I think if you're going to take anything away from this podcast, it's just like, just do you. Yeah. You know, like whatever you want. Like life is so short. Even though it's the longest thing that we have, it's still pretty short. Because you never know like how many more days are left. And like, don't waste time being in someone else's box if you don't want to. And it is totally okay if you derive joy from that. Like my brother is the complete opposite of me. He has a nine to five. He's ambitious in within that, you know, corporate realm. He wants certain things, but he won't go out and get it, but mm. that he's okay with it. Um, he, you know, has a wife, no kids. They know exactly what they're going to do every weekend, <laughs> two vacations a year. Like he's very, very structured. He'll probably be happier than I will ever be in my life. But, you know, like he's cool with that, you know, like he doesn't want to go and like start a company and do his own thing and have a podcast. Like none of those things give him joy. Mm -hmm. Right. So like the message I want people to to take away, um, you know, really from any conversation is just like just do what makes you happy. Right. If someone comes to you and says you should start a company like and and that's not what you want to do, don't do it. If you don't want to quit your corporate job, if you love the structure like, and the security and the benefits, like, you should do that. Yeah. Because being an entrepreneur is going to take all of that away from you. <laughs> and some people are just not fulfilled by that, right? Like, the thing that I care about is freedom, but everyone defines freedom a different way. Right? Freedom to my brother yeah. is having, you know, 30 days a year. You know, paid vacation and being able to, you know, do the things he loves every day in the same city and knowing exactly what he's going to do every weekend like, I'm never going to understand that, but like, it's totally cool that that's the way he chooses to live his life. Yeah. And I think, I think it, I th- Alan Watts has a good part where he talks about, you know, um, prickles and goo. And he says, some people are prickly and some people are goo, but the prickly <laughs> people need the goo because how do you know what you are? Right? Like, you know, those are the exact words I was looking for. <laughs> I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. <laughs> It is. It's beautiful to see the way in which other people live their life because it gives you an, a, a window into what you like about what your own life and what maybe you don't like about your own life. And so too are those other people mirrors for us and stuff. I, do you have any book recommendations, Melissa? Like what, what are you reading or do you have any books that people might want to check out? Yeah. So the book I always recommend, um, that is not a business book in this, you know, in this context is The Alchemist. Mm, uh, by Paulo Coelho, uh, Paulo Coelho uh, one of the best books I've ever read. Probably will be the best book I ever read. I've read it like 20 times at different points in my life and I get something else, you know, from yeah. it. But it is the ultimate, you know, the ultimate story of how a boy leaves his home to chase after his dreams and, and what happens kind of along the journey. And, um, you know, eventually he gets what he wants, but not after a few obstacles. Um, but it's just beautifully written. It's short, um, all ages. Yeah. And the, if it's business related, um, the presentation secrets of Steve jobs is the Mm. one, like if you were to never read a business book again, this is the one, like it is all about, like he didn't write it. Um, Carmine Gallo did, but it is an incredible study of communication 
and how to align what you want to say with what you want to be heard. Mm. And it's not, it is an, it, it's, it's a technique that I use not only in business, but also, you know, in my personal life as well. Cause I think a lot of times that's where friction comes in, right? What is yeah. what, what you're saying is not what's being interpreted. Mm. And that is, you know, how apparently Steve Jobs sells all his products. <laughs> <laughs> it, communication, it, it's such an, an interesting thing. And it brings up this other idea that I was talking to some people about recently. You know, when I, when I look at the English language, I see like a letter is part of a word, a word is part of a sentence, a sentence is part of a paragraph, a paragraph is part of a story, a story is part of a book, a book is part of an encyclopedia. You know, there's this linear fashion that we're taught to speak in. And in some ways, I think that the way we speak is the way we think. And we see so much linear thought of people, I'm going to do this and then this and then this and then this. In some ways, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, do you see us... I kind of see this in, in this idea of speech being paired with imagery now is kind of evolving our language. And if I'll give you an example, like Adobe Premiere or Convo or any of these AI images, they're allowing you to do text to imagery now. So in some ways, it seems to me that what we're seeing is this evolution of speech happening. And I bring it up because it speaks to the idea of communication. If you and I have different definitions of a word, we can talk all day long, but our definitions are different. Thus, our communication is somewhat hindered. However, if we have images that go along with the words we're speaking, might that convey a more fuller, better message? Do you, is that making sense? Do you see that as a, as a way moving forward with communication and images? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... Definitely in, in like business context, um, yes. you know, th that's, I mean, that's why we have PowerPoint yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And, and slide decks, right? Like we're, yeah. we're, we're visual people, right? Yeah. Like there is, I think there's very few things that inspire like emotions. Yes. Than like an image. Um, and actually like I learned this recently about one of my best friends that she can't imagine like there's, there's like a thing, there's like a word for it. Like she okay. can't visualize images in her head. I can't so imagine she, that. Yeah. So she doesn't <laughs> daydream. Like she doesn't have memories the way that we do. Like if I was like, oh, remember like last Sunday we were here? Like she cannot picture it ever again. It's so weird, right? Wow. Yeah. So some wow. people actually like, yeah, she, she doesn't daydream. She doesn't remember any of her dreams and she can't recall visual memories. That so breaks my heart people, a little bit. Yeah. There are people out there like that. Um, yeah. so I think that's where it, it really helps, but I mean, picture cell. Yeah. Right. With a thousand words, right? With a thousand words. <laughs> it's interesting too, because different cultures have different meanings for words. You know, when we think about obedience or when we think about respect. It may mean different things in different cultures. And so if you don't define your terms right off the bat, people talking past each other or side monologuing and that, that, does that seem to happen in business? If only, Im if only images can remove all misunderstandings. Oh <laughs> yeah. We may never see that day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good but if point. only, if only that could, if only that could happen. Yeah, I think you got to mix it with like spirituality and psychedelics and we might get somewhere, but <laughs> one back day maybe. Yeah, back to recording your dreams. 
<laughs> Melissa, this has been incredible. I'm super thankful for your time and got to spend some time listening to what, what your visions are of the future, how you got to be where you are, what you're excited about. Where can people find you and what do you got coming up? Yeah, the best way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. Um, so Melissa Kwan, my last name is spelled K-W-A-N. Um, I write daily slash weekly about my experience bootstrapping three companies. Um, and if you want to check out how eWebinar can help you, your business, free you from those repetitive webinars that you hate doing, um, just go to eWebinar.com, join our demo. Of course, our demo of the product is our product, delivering the demo. So it's a very meta thing. Uh, I manage a chat or, you know, COO, uh, my COO, Todd. Um, but yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to show you the product and, you know, give you your freedom back if that's your it. thing. But if, if you love thing. doing back-to-back -back live demos or training, whatever, that's, that's up to you as well. <laughs> then don't come to my website in that case. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I hope you have a beautiful day. Melissa, hang on one second. I'm going to talk to you briefly afterwards, but I'm going to hang up with our friends here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Have a beautiful day. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, Go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.